0: Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderberg. I am here, as always, with my co-host, John Cribbs, And today might be our masterpiece of mispronunciation in which we are going to be confronted by a series of French words, titles, and names we have never heard said out loud and which we will almost definitely mangle. I can tell you the one thing we will get correct is Becker. Mainly because of the sitcom named after Becker, we know how it's pronounced when we say Jacques Becker's name. So,
1: I, f- I found this very charming how to pronounce famous French film director names on YouTube. But, um, Vernoy, Vernoy, but she's like adding like an extra like noyoui at the yeah. end of it.
0: Well, I'm not able to do that, so I'm, I'm not able Verneuil. to do that. At all.
1: But then when she says it quickly, it just sounds like Vernoy, so that's fine. Henri Vernoy, Jacques Rivet has the easiest to pronounce French name.
0: Jack Rivet, Jack Rivets.
1: (laughs) Jackie Rivets.
0: Good old Jackie Rivets. (laughs) John, how are you doing this evening and what are we talking about today? Uh, Chris, thanks for inviting me here poolside at the Pink Smoke headquarters
1: where we're enjoying some grilled tripe sausage and some pate and some uh, some wine from Nantes. Some brandy. What is the brandy called? Napoleon brandy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean we're 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 head down classy avenues here because we're going to be talking about two excellent french crime movies starring the great the legendary jean gaban. The first one we're talking about is Jacques Becker's Tuesday ou Grisby or Hands Off the L- Don't Touch the Loot and Henri Vernoy's Any Number Can Win from 1963. Uh, these are two films that I love and they're so much fun and I can't wait to talk about.
0: Them. Yes, this is e- the concept that I pitched to John of this episode is Jean Gabin is too old for this shit. And these are the two finest films in the genre of Jean Gabin is too old for this shit now. Right. Which he stretched
1: out over at least two and a half decades.
0: Yeah. I was going to say he's like, he's like Eastwood in that way. And that like in the mid eighties you have like heartbreak Ridge and part of the theme is like Eastwood is too old for this shit, right? Everybody thinks it starts with Unforgiven, but like for for 30 years now, Clint Eastwood has been making, this man is simply too old to do this job, right? Uh, movies. And Jean Gabin did a similar thing. Jean Gabin is obviously an icon of French cinema. If you don't know who he is, he is... Uh, probably the biggest French movie star of all time, certainly in the thirties when he was making his reputation with films like Pepe Lamoco and grand illusion and bet humane. Um, he was the guy, he was the absolute guy and he was known for, these are both gangster movies we're talking about today. And he was known for making gangster movies. He made sort of the poetic, realist romantic gangster films and he was the icon of that and so these movies again like like the eastwood movies where you have you know something like in the line of fire is you know a little bit of the concept is what if dirty harry was an old man you know Unforgiven uh, <laughs> unforgiveness what if you know joe well, from the man with no name trilogy was an old man you know uh that's that's what these films are is they're playing off his longtime image to, to uh, explore both the past of what he's been and what it means to, to grow old as well.
1: And like Eastwood, it's not even so much that he can't do these things anymore. It's like he can't be bothered to do these things anymore, yes. you know, to actually step up and do the kind of heist and crimes, the capers that he has in mind. It's, uh, it's task for him now. It's, like it's tiring. He'd much rather retire back to the safe house eat some pate and go to bed early then have to yes. deal with any of this stuff.
0: That is, that is in Touche Pao Grisby. The, the key scene is the, the safe house pate and warm pajamas scene, but also there's a great scene early on in the movie where he and his, he's playing Max, Max Lamentor, which I don't know why he's called that Max the liar. Right. It uh, comes from the the book, I suppose which I have not read because I don't think it's been translated into English. But uh, he and his partner, riton they're hanging out at the club. They're with their two sexy young dames. One of them played by Jean Romero, who is like hidden under a mask of youth in this film. The first time I saw this movie, I, I couldn't identify her in it because she looks so young and doesn't look like Jean Romero. I think she's like 18 or 19 in the movie, right? Yeah, character. and it's only,
1: what, four years before Elevator to the Gallows? So it's yeah. crazy that she turns into Jean Moreau over, like, four years, you know?
0: Yes, yes, like the embodiment of French womanhood. Like, there is no more there is no more French man than Jean Gabin, and there is no more French woman than Jean Moreau. Um, but they're in the club, and uh, the girls want them to stay out late. The girls work at the club. They're going to do their mermaid dance number in a little bit. And you know Max says to Rattan, uh, tell the ladies we got to go pull a job, right? So we can't hang out with them later. And Raton's like, what job? And he's like, there's no job. I just want to go home. If we keep hanging out with these ladies, they're going to want to go out for onion soup later you know how it is and then the hotel it's just like I just want to go home
1: after we're gonna be asked to bang them oh my god it's I'm, I'm exhausted just thinking
0: about it it is it's and that's that's the tone of Touche Pao Grisby uh before we we dive into it I think there's a I think the 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 order of things is we should um talk a little bit about the plots of these movies just to set them up second thing talk about our relationship to them and then third sort of place them in the context of cinema entirely. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I'll do the, the plot of Touche Pile Grisby and you can do any number can win. Um, Touche Pile Grisby is actually very straightforward and simple in a lot of ways. You have Raton and Max who are two uh, not legendary, but well-known and well-respected gangsters. They hang out at the gangster restaurant where the squares get shown the door Immediately, they come in one and cake, and the lady's like, Get out of here. And, and Max and Breton are clearly kind of big shots. They've pulled off a heist that no one has known who pulled it off of 50 million in gold bullion, right? Huge amount of money. And none of the money's been spent, and they've just been sitting on it for a while. You know, I get the sense it's about a year that they've been sitting on it, not spending this, this gold bullion, these gold bars. A guy, played by the great Lino Ventura, playing Angelo, who is supplying uh, the drugs. We know he's supplying the, the drugs for the club that is owned by their good friend, Pero, owned by uh, Max. Yeah, Max and Ritons. And I'm like, Max is not that fat. You leave, <laughs> you leave fats alone. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's... Uh, the great Paul Frank here, who
1: would, of course, go on to be in Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and lots of other classic
0: films. Great. Great, great. This movie is, everybody is just great that pops up in this movie. And it's the movie that discovered Lino Ventura. This was his first film. He was a, a pro wrestler whose career it ended recently. And he did this movie and was immediate, like immediately a movie star after this. Everybody sort of stood up. And he's got that hulking, you know, pro wrestler, pro fighter's body. He's got the huge hand. And he, he looks like a thick neck goon in this movie, which is great casting. But he goes on to play the thick neck goon with glasses. I think it's really easy to compare him to Dave Bautista if you want to like locate him. Interesting. Like a pro wrestler who's immediately taken seriously as an actor and is sort of big and menacing, but plays to his sensitive side and his intellectual side very quickly, you know, as an actor and a performer. And Angelo is also having an affair with Josie, John Moreau, who's Riton's girlfriend, right? He's sleeping with her, and Josie tells Angelo about the gold bullion heist. This is the only person Raton is told, and he's head over and heel head over heels for this young woman. He's a complete fool, you know. Max is like, "What are you and doing?" F-
1: feels her slipping away from him is the reason he tells her about the money because he's worried that she is not interested in him anymore, and he thinks if he can brag to her that he's got this big stash you know, kind of hidden away that she's going to stay with him and then, you know, be with him for longer is the reason that he is desperately telling her about this.
0: So Angelo finds out about the money. He sets in motion a plot to try and kidnap both Max Gaban's character and Riton and sort of, here's our plan. We'll get him and then we'll beat the hell out of him. You know, that's his only plan. Well, I guess he also has a fake ambulance. He has his his uh, goons show up dressed like paramedics in a fake ambulance. The idea is they're going to go into those guys' houses and knock them out and take them take them away in the fake ambulance and rough them up and find out where the money is. Not a bad plan. Not a bad plan. Pretty similar to the uh, the plan. Is it in the seventh where that's the plan where they use the fake ambulance for the heist? Um, and... From there, Raton, he can't stay away from Josie. Josie sells him out to Angelo again. He gets caught. And basically the second half of the movie is uh, Max getting the crew together. You know, Fats and Marco, they kidnap Fifi, played by the great, uh, uh, what is that actor's name? Paul, Daniel Couchy. They kidnap Fifi, played by Daniel Couchy from Bob La He's great when you need a kid to get shoved around in a French gangster movie. And they find out wh- what's going on with Angelo. They get the gang together. They bust out the SMGs and it all comes together in a trade for the gold bullion for Riton's life and a shootout on the back road. Very straight ahead. Essentially, they've got a score. Angelo finds out about the score. The bad guys try and shake him down for it. And it leads to, you know, mayhem. Just some of the, literally some of the most satisfying and gripping on screen violence ever filmed at the end it's just such an amazing sequence
1: that's what for me grisby was famous for for a long time was the kind of slow burning film where they are setting things up and there's a lot of planning and there's a lot of eating pate at the safe house and you know meetings in clubhouses and whatnot and if you find any of that too slow or boring well how about a fucking amazing final 15 minute climax With guns and explosives and the loot getting burned up in a car and just, I'll just, you know, it kind of for me is Becker saying, hey, if I wanted this movie to be riveting from beginning to end, I fucking would have. I can do this. I can do an amazing action sequence. Here it is. I was saving it up. That's what, you know, that's what you impatient assholes should have been waiting for. I mean, that that, and that's just assuming that someone is impatient during this movie, which she shouldn't be because it's amazing. I am riveted just watching them eat in the pate.
0: Yeah it reminds me a little of heat where there's like only one real action sequence in heat, but that is the only action sequence you need. You know, it's that same sort of, uh, it's just when the action happens, it's so good. And it's been so built up to that. It's, you don't need any more in it. And we keep mentioning the safe house scene. I, to me, the signature scene of the movie is that scene where, um, Max alerts Riton, Gaban alerts uh, Riton that there's going to be uh, the drop coming on him and to get out of there. They got to go, that he almost got taken and now they got to go hide. He takes Riton to a safe house where the loot is hidden in a five million uh, franc car that's just been sitting in the garage, all locked up in the basement and um, tells them, this is my safe house. And even Ritan didn't know about this safe house. And they go in and what makes this scene so memorable is this safe house has like champagne and these little pots of pate, like foil sealed pate that they get out and just like great looking baguettes and just the most comfortable looking fresh pajamas you will ever see in your life. And it really is one of those things where, you just go, this, this is so nice and so lovely. And this is clearly the plan to live like this and leave the clubs behind and just go home and have pate and go to sleep in a great looking bed in phenomenally comfortable looking pajamas. And that's, that's what the goal is, right?
1: It's the big goal. And I would also say, when you're talking about Jean Gabon and what makes him so effortlessly cool in all of his films For me, you can sum it up by saying he looks as amazing in pajamas as he does in the pinstripe suits and his other finery. I mean, this man can wear pajamas in both these movies we're talking about. He has fantastic, clean, they look pressed. I mean, they look like brand new pajamas that Gabon just looks so goddamn hot in. I mean, he just looks fantastic. Looks like he can go out and have dinner at a fancy restaurant in these pajamas. And when so many... So many action stars are, are are ranked by, you know, how cool they are, how cool their dialogue is or the things that they do. For me, the reason Gabon is just amazingly cool is that pajamas is all you have to say <laughs> in terms of his coolness.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: Show me a cool guy in a new movie in pajamas. You can't do it. No one can pull up pajamas like Gabon, in my opinion.
0: That is absolutely true. But I will say... This movie is 1954, and Gaban is 49 when he's filming it. So he's old, but he's like a couple years older than me. He's not wildly old in my mind. By the time you get to any number, uh, can win. He's 58, and I would say he's he looks great still in Grisby, but in any number and win, he's moving into Orson Welles and Touch of Evil territory. He's sort of hulking and tired looking. And not gross the way Wells is intentionally gross in Touch of Evil, but definitely you look at him and you're like, that's a fucking big man, you know? He's
1: settled into the pudginess at this point, and he's a lot grayer.
0: And so what is, take us through Any Number Can Win, John.
1: Any Number Can Win is a fantastic black and white film that comes right in the epicenter of the French New Wave, and like Melville's uh, Magnet of Doom, I kind of had a <laughs> internal conflict of whether or not it was trying to cater to like new wave sensibilities or s- setting them up specifically. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where obviously uh, Vernoy is not one of the, you know, consider one of the hot young directors like a Godard or a Truffaut.
0: And he's but- one of their enemies, but they don't really go after him he's exactly
1: yeah yeah. like melville he's doing like a traditional kind of story he's not showing off aesthetically but this film definitely has like a kind of youth sensibility to it that feels you know of its time of the you know part of of being in the middle of the new wave but the plot is gaban playing Monsieur charles has just gotten out of prison for i think was two or three years something like that uh he's had um He's been in there for a while and he's coming back to his, I guess it must be longer than that because he comes it's back to his years. hometown yeah, and he doesn't recognize it because he says it's been New Yorkified. You know, everything has now been urbanized
0: and gentrified. They've put apartment blocks all over a part of the city that was supposed to be full of trees.
1: He loved because of the trees. Exactly. So Sort of
0: quaint suburban looking little houses replaced by block, like really like straight lego block looking apartment building
1: yeah so he has this voiceover that establishes that he has already been kind of passed over by the times while he's been doing this uh jag inside of the inside prison he goes home his wife has been waiting for him she uh has been harassed by neighbors and gone through all kind of trials obviously and something that shares with uh, grisby at least the 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 Perot subplot, you know, is the kind of wife that you sort of have to, the disapproving wife that you kind of have to get over if you're going to be (laughs) doing these things and being involved in these things. She wants credit for, you know, she says to him at one point, uh, "Did you wonder if I was, you know, faithful to you while you're in prison?" He's like, "No, not really, (laughs) you know," Uh, and you feel bad for kind of right immediately because she's, while he's been gone, developed this plan to like go into business and open a restaurant like by the seaside and and go legit you know now that he's out
0: oh, oh great idea john you think it'd be the negresco <laughs> you think you think that's what we're gonna do
1: <laughs> she's for all her like effort and diligent planning of hey you're out now i've been faithful you know i've waited for you now i've got an idea of how we can spend the rest of our lives our old age this does not appeal to goodbye <laughs> shockingly He may be old. He may be, you know, into the pajamas very early, but he still wants that last heist. And you get the idea because they they talk about their finances and it seems like they're okay. like they're going to do all right between them from what they saved from his, you know, from (laughs) from his capers and what she has managed to save. You get the impression right away that it's not going to be enough for him.
0: The, the development company is going to give them more money than he's ever made on a heist to knock down their house so they can build another apartment building. That's one right. of the great jokes I love in it is like, we can just sell this house and make more money than you've ever made on a heist. You know, like we can yeah. go straight.
1: That they, yeah, that they are set up to just very legally be set up for the rest of their lives and they'd be fine. But it's not enough for Gaban. He wants to pull off this heist. Which, once you hear about the the plan of the heist, it's even more beguiling that you wouldn't just go the straight route because it doesn't seem to have, you know, because he talks about, like, I've got this great, I've got, it's foolproof, you know, it's going to go over like gangbusters and I had the whole thing plotted out. He really doesn't, though, and there are a lot of things that can go wrong and do go wrong. And the plot is that he's going to target this casino, this resort casino uh, called the Residence Marley. And he needs another guy in on it. He's a a heister who I guess has always worked alone and always been able to pull off heists by himself. But he needs a younger man because his plan, and again, this is not a foolproof plan, is to have a young man somehow get into this, what is it? It's like a stage show, right? Like a chorus that they do at the casino. He needs a young man to seduce one of the chorus girls so he has access to the backstage which he needs to access the vault of this casino because so, they got to
0: get up onto the roof, and the only access to the roof is from this stage area.
1: And it seems like there are a million ways, especially when you see him actually sneaking in later on. There are a million ways they probably could have accessed this backstage without the whole undercover plot, you know, which is yeah. obviously the thing that that burns them, that that uh, you know screws everything up. But he decides to enlist this kid who he did time with named Francis. I call him a kid. That's kind of the funny thing about this character is that he's, you know, living with his mother. He's got like a leather jacket. He's got like a youth, like fuck you attitude. He plays loud rock music and it's Alan DeLong as Francis. But he's 27 years old. (laughs) Yeah. He's kind of this pathetic guy who- He's
0: a real, he really reminded me of um, the main characters from Seijun Suzuki's Youth and Revolt films mm, that are just kind of like dickheads who hang around by jukeboxes. You know, like they're not really criminals. They're just, what is this guy, a criminal? No, he's just hes just a real cock knocker hanging around by a jukebox.
1: <laughs> he really is a cock knocker. I mean, he's uh, definitely like a low-class kid. A-, a huge part of the movie is when he takes on the persona of this uh, fancy moneyed guy going to this resort Gabon has to tell him, you know, don't, don't gush over the sea. It's always been there, you know, don't make a big deal about this luxury that suddenly you, you aren't used to
0: let the bellboys take your luggage and remember to tip them, you
1: know, right, right. right. Don't act like a guy who is, you know, suddenly, you know, been been given access to this world that you've never known. So that's sort of a big thing of setting it up. And he also enlists uh, Louis, who is uh, a mechanic and is Francis's brother-in-law. And Louis is probably the tragic character, I think, of the story, yeah. because he gets kind of bullied into, like, being involved in this heist, kind of playing the chauffeur and being around Gabin. And Louis is somebody, in contrast to Francis, who is content with his life, doesn't mind living the blue-collar existence, and is kind of appalled by all this luxury once they get to the casino. Can't believe that he doesn't have to make his own bed, that the bed will just be made by itself, and ultimately, you know, decides hey, listen, I'll do what you guys want me to do for this heist. Uh, You know, I told you I would because they kind of bullied him into doing it. He said, but I'm not going to take any of the money because I would not want to live this life, which is the exact opposite of Francis, who is clearly loves driving around this fancy car, loves seducing these women, but, you know, by acting fancy and like he's
0: And Gaban's character too. His wife has the line, you know, it's funny that you always wanted to live in silk shirts and you ended up in... Uh, In wool and slippers, right? Mm -hmm. Reference to his prison outfit. You know, you want to live the high life, but you end up living a way worse life than you would if you just went straight. But he also has the line when he's rejecting running this hotel in the Riviera uh, to his wife of, you know, 7 a.m. to midnight. I just can't do it. And a lot of this movie is about when Gaban is like on the train at the beginning, he's listening to the people all getting ready to go away for vacation and talking about like the 80,000 franc installment plan to go to to Brittany or wherever, you know, or to go see the, uh, you know, the tourist traps and the Greek Isles, Right. And he just has this reaction of like, how can people fucking live like this? I just can't live like that. Even if I go back to prison, I just can't live the way everybody else lives.
1: Yeah, there's something about him that thinks he's entitled to to luxury and to the classy life, you know, because why not? Because he's Jean Gabin, obviously. <laughs> and I think, again, you know, I say that this heist is not very well thought out and not very well planned. I think the reason he jumps into it with both feet is because he has that draw, that he has that idea of, I need to live somewhat vicariously through Francis and I need to be in a luxury hotel and act like a big shot. You know, I, I yeah. think that he thinks the silk pajamas are the only existence that he ever wants to do. I don't even think it's about the money in the end. It's just about this, this feeling of being Jean Gabin, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's not going to work if you're in an apartment or running a restaurant.
0: And so the second half of this movie, this movie is about two hours long. And basically the entire second half, the second hour is just the heist. You know, the preparations, getting everything set up, getting all the pieces put in place and then doing it. But it builds to a final poolside scene after they've gotten the money and their bad draw of luck is where they've hidden the money is in this changing room beside a swimming pool overlooking the ocean, like a fancy swimming pool associated with one of the hotels, I think, overlooking the ocean. And when they go to pick up the money, the cops, the detectives that are on the case investigating the casino heist, have just randomly like gotten together to have coffee and hang around by this pool to discuss what's going on. There's not really any reason for them to be there. It's just sort of generally in the area. And so the police are sort of like going over the day and figuring out what they're gonna do. Gaban is caught waiting for Alan DeLon who has the two bags of money and everything just sort of uh, squeezes down on them. The vice clamp comes down. But as you
1: point out, you know, it's incredibly humorous how the cops are just walking back and forth, you know, behind DeLon describing the bags that are sitting right next to him and whatnot. But the reason for urgency at that point is that uh, DeLon has had his picture <laughs> on the front page of the newspaper. Cause he's when DeLon. He the... When
0: he's hanging out at the casino, somebody <laughs> snaps a photo. Cause he's so. Yeah, they're like,
1: holy shit, that, that's an example of a great looking uh, rich guy. So, cause Gaban, like in Grisby, has had this idea of like, hey, there's no rush. We'll sit on the money for a while. We'll stay at this hotel for a week, right? You know, he says, you know, we're just going to sit on it. And then when the heat dies down and they think that we've, you know, skipped, you know, continents or whatever, that's when we're going to move in and get rid of, get the loot and get out of here. But because now everyone recognized Delon on the front page of this newspaper, he says, okay, we got to go get the money right now and get out of here. And he sends Louis away and he and Delon end up in this situation at the pool.
0: And the pool is like the end of Grisby. It's a really that last sequence is the whole movie that 10 minute sequence of it's them amazing. by the pool where it's it amazing. just it just it just it's so the big and stylish and overblown you you kind of if you like the movie, and I think the movie's good before, this sequence makes it so you like cannot deny the movie. It like ascends in the sequence. It goes from being a pretty good crime film to something that's just so tense and strange and beautifully shot and edited. And the score is so dynamite, you'll just never forget this score. And just like the image of the money floating up in the pool when that happens, it's just like the wads of cash blooming in this underwater flower garden and then like lily pads on the surface it is just it's it's just like the movie ascends in this moment it just reaches a different level of like stylishness and strangeness too it's a very weird sequence in how it sort of eschews and avoids all of the movements you would think a heist film does in this moment. It's sort of like the walls closing in becomes an opportunity to be like incredibly poetic and, and, and lavish, you know, um, it's not, it's a not desperate sequence. And there's virtually no dialogue except for the cops sort of talking in the background, or I should say Delon and Gaban have no dialogue.
1: Yeah. Know? And, and, and Gabin is just sitting at a table, He's ordered some food and he's reading a newspaper with his sunglasses on. And that's all he does in that sequence. Sit there and watch helplessly as this money gets revealed to the entire world. Yeah. You know. (laughs) And sort
0: of as he watches his accomplice be helpless. Like this is the scene where you get, oh, Delon, he, of course he's a clown. He's been a clown the whole movie. All of all of the things he does in response to the heat is so idiotic. He just keeps making things worse. And it's very much like Bird with Crystal Plumage where Delon just is like trapped, Our Gaban is trapped watching it, sort of watching this crime go down in front of him. He has no way in and no way out, you know?
1: Yeah, that's another connection between these films is that alternative titles for them could be fucking Raton and fucking Francis- <laughs> Yeah. Because he has this accomplice who is just fucking up left and right. And he has a whole voiceover in Grisby where he's like, why the hell do I even hang out with this guy? He's cost me so much dough in the past. You know, he's caused me so many problems. And now he's fucking this thing up. And it's great because you, you as, the, as, as the audience member, have been thinking the same thing of like, why you effortlessly cool guy who everybody loves? Why are you hanging out with this loser who's desperately trying to hold on to this young woman who doesn't want anything to do with him? Why are you with them? And I love that dynamic of, you know, cool guys need a loser friend. I yeah. just, just do, you know? <laughs> well, and it's, it's going to be their weakness, but it's something that they need mm-hmm. at the same time.
0: Yeah, I would say when I compare these two movies, and they're fun to compare because it's the first one's about a guy who really just needs to get out of the game and knows it. And and any number can win is about a guy who just will never get out of the game, who needs the game to define him, Right. But also I would say Grisby to me is cinema's greatest friendship and any number can win is cinema's worst stupidest friendship. (laughs) That's about right. I think those are the comparisons. And I love that scene, the one where you talk about with the voiceover, which uh, this time watching it really struck me a lot more where he does have the moment of like, why am I putting myself on the line for this clown shoes idiot, right? And so you're worried he's going to sell Rattan out, but you also know it would do the same thing for him. And when he goes and gets Rattan when he's finally gotten them after the hostage exchange, he gives him that little slap on the back of the head. And it doesn't quite say, don't worry, we're going to go get these motherfuckers, which they are for sure. <laughs> but it's a little bit like... Of course I was going to be here, you know, like, and not even like I'm the cool one and you're the bad one, but like, we're friends we're, we're I'm the cool one and you're the bad one, but our friendship makes us equals somehow. That's just the way it works is that we're, we're the same. We're not different. You right.
1: Know? It, it also just makes it Max that much cooler that Rattan didn't know about this safe house, didn't know where the loot was being hidden. You know, Max can keep his fucking trap shut. You know, he's not even going to tell his best friend who was in on the heist about any of this stuff about buying the rolls, you know, and and hiding the gold bars in the trunk because he knows how this shit works. He's not going to go yapping and fuck everything up like Rattan is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I would say too, it's funny because you, I'm, you and I are both getting middle-aged and when I watch these movies, Grisby is a celebration of old friends. That's really what it's about is that, you know, your old resistance buddies like Pyrrho are going to be there to like, Get the SMGs out of the wine boxes in his basement. You know what oh, I yeah. mean. Oh yeah, it's
1: a total Devane and Tommy Lee Jones from uh, Rolling, Rolling Thunder. Thunder.
0: Yes, you just know that guy's going to be there forever for you, and he's going to be there for Raton, and Raton would be there for him too. Whereas any number, and I obviously really identify with that, is you have a few friends that have just been around forever, and like they're not going anywhere. When you're younger, you have like thirty friends, and then when you're forty, you have three, and like if you show up and you're like, I need a gun, they're gonna have it, you know? Um, whereas any totally. number can win, I feel like is is focused on the idea that like, you actually can't make new friends when you get to mm. a certain age, <laughs> that there's just not enough time to build those bonds and relationships, you know? And even, and even Grisby has Marco, who's like the young guy who's really important and they've sort of let into their circle. Um, he's still an outsider somehow, you know what I mean? He just doesn't feel the same as the other ones. And you can respect young people and get along with them and have connections to them, but it's just not the same as the really good friends. You know, yeah, there's no, just he's
1: something... ready to let him go. He's ready to let Marco get involved with Angelo's gang, you know, and kind yeah. of casting him off. Like, okay, you go be with the guys who are really into this gangster thing. You know, yeah. I'm not really the guy you want to be talking to these days.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I also, it's the other big comparison that I would say between the two, although there's a lot of comparisons, is Grisby is all about how Max doesn't make any mistakes, right? Fate is just something you can't fight. Like the grind, the criminal life, the gangs, the game, they're just relentless. Lino Ventura's character, Angelo, is relentless. And that's what defines him is he is, in his soul, a criminal, and the criminal... Has the plan, and he's going through with the plan, and he's going to follow it all the way down the line, and there's no escaping it, you know. And that's that's the fate. As if you're in that life, that fate is just going to come for you relentlessly. Um, whereas any number can win, and it doesn't matter whether you fuck up or not. There's a fucking up, getting it right or getting it wrong, making stupid mistakes or not doesn't matter. It's just this fate is coming for you in that world. Any Number Can Win is about somebody who is addicted to failing, who just can't resist screwing up their life, who just can't get out of that world because that world is where you go if you're self-destructive and a fuck-up and getting drawn into that world. And and Gaban's cool is used in a funny way where that's sort of the illusion that he uses to sell it to everybody is that he's Gaban and he's got the sunglasses on and he's awesome. But there's so many holes in the plan and you get the sense that it's either live like this or go back to jail for him, that there's no option of getting out of it.
1: Um, 100% agree. And Another thing too is, in terms of failure, in terms of what not to do, Max being able to go with the flow so effortlessly has to do with your relationship with women, right? Max, yeah, enjoys relationships with women, but he knows when to hit on the uncle's secretary. You know, he knows yeah. the right times to like give her a little kiss right before the uncle walks in. It's not careless. He just he he knows how it works. He's not going to get hung up over a woman. He uh, a big subplot of any number can win obviously is Delon seducing uh, Jeanette this yeah dance girl in order to get in but he gets wrapped up in it right he you know he gets off on showing off we see early on that he's not able to like just. Get the women to come to him, which seems very unrealistic considering it's yeah. Alan Delon looking like Alan
0: Delon and, in in nineteen sixty three, and you're and you're <laughs> yeah. and you're sure plot- Alan Delon by the pool. Yeah, your plot hinges on these ladies, these chicks. They just don't like Alan Delon. It's like <laughs> maybe maybe rethink that subplot a little bit. Right, but once he finds a
1: way to you know use his his undercover his fake influence and uh, fake riches to you know win this woman over, he gets off on it, and that's part of the reason he gets distracted and things don't go well is that he gets hung up over this gal who doesn't ultimately want to be with him, wants to be with this other, other guy.
0: Yeah. Well, she she wants, she wants to be with, you know, there's the scene, there's the great scene early on when Riton and uh, Gaban are at the floor show, getting ready to watch John Moreau and her, and her girlfriend's mermaid dance. Right. And, And Max says to Riton, look, you're becoming one of these old guys out here on the dance floor, dancing with these young women who only want their money. And he goes through and kind of makes cracks about all of them. And there's one who's particularly sort of ghastly looking, whose nickname is the Boogeyman. And in Any Number Can Win, uh, Jeanette is going to be with the Boogeyman at the end of it. The guy looks very similar, just like an (laughs) instantly unappealing looking dude with like uh, just like greasy face and just nothing appealing about him and that's who she's gonna be with because that's that's her life and her way out of it you know that's the game for her that's the grind for her that's the hustle for her the way theirs is heist those with the dance hall women is finding a rich guy you know to to bring him straight right mm-hmm. and that is a funny comparison too just to to bring them to bring them in um before we we go, Further, I want to say when I suggested this, I felt a little um, nervous to compare the movies because, you know, I don't have like a top 20 favorite movies, but Touche Pile Grisby is one of my all time favorite movies. I think this is one of the best movies ever made. Uh, and I really, really love it. And any number can win. It's almost not fair to compare any crime film to Grisby. It's like almost, or for that
1: matter, you know, Melville movies that were being made at the same time. Yeah, any number can win because you can't help notice that it's not being directed by
0: Melville. Yeah, I also think that even Melville, he has like two, I'd say, are as good as as Grisby. You know what I mean? And he only made great movies. That is not a diminishment of the other movies. That's just a statement of how I think how good. Grisby is, you know, that I'm not putting Cirque Rouge on the level with Grisby. I think Grisby is better yeah. than that in a pretty decisive way. Oh, so yeah, if, and
1: I think Grisby set Melville on the right path, too. I mean, he does Bob yeah. LaFambeur, like, the next year. I mean, I think Grisby had to have been a gigantic influence on him from that
0: point And on. reuses, you know, Daniel Couchy, right? He brings <laughs> him into to Bob Bird to be the kid who's shoved around, yeah. right? I'd, um, I'd
1: be, I would not be shocked to hear that they wrote Bob LaFambeur thinking Gabon would star in it. i never read that, but
0: he's made to look up like a bond. His hair yeah. is dyed that silverish color. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and absolutely. Uh, I think that the fairest thing I could say is that any number can win is Ocean's 11 and Grisby is the limey. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Ocean's 11 mm-hmm. is not a bad movie. It's a very stylish movie. I'm almost tempted to say it's out of sight. But I actually think Out of Sight is better than The Limey. I would just say there's one movie that's like purely entertaining, right? And then there's one movie that's a real movie, you know, that's mm-hmm. that deserves to be mentioned alongside like anything. Like Teshigahara yeah. and and Kurosawa, you
1: know? <laughs> Except that last 10 minutes, like you said, where that movie becomes something completely different and completely uh its own thing
0: yeah but it's also stylish in a way that's that's very hollywood and any number can win was co-produced by mgm essentially and it does have a very big hollywood sheen to it so i was a little hesitant to to put them next to each other because i feel like just the light that grisby shines is is so bright uh that it's i i didn't want any Number Can Win to feel like it's in its shadow, but watching them together, I felt like this is actually a very good comparison, a very fair comparison. And Delon and Gaban are so good in Any Number Can Win, and Carla Marlier, who plays Jeanette, they're all so charming in it, that, that it's the way Hollywood cinema is completely charming, it sort of doesn't need, it doesn't need my help. You know what I mean? Its pleasures sure. are so self-evident; <laughs> it doesn't need to be devi- de- defended by me. You know.
1: Yeah, and when any number goes off to be with Delon for a long stretch of time, leaving Gaban in the hotel room, it's very different from Grisby. I mean, it becomes very much its own thing. It's not, in it you know kind of gets in the convertible and, f- <laughs> and drives out of its shadow in a way.
0: Yes, yes. It starts off a long off stretch as...
1: of movie where it's about his character.
0: Yeah, it starts off as Gaban's movie for the first like 20 minutes or so before Delon is even introduced. It might be more like 25 minutes before Delon is even on screen. And then it passes it off to Delon for a big stretch and then brings them back together.
1: And Delon is great in the movie, too. You know, he does a great job, like I said, kind of at the beginning being this kind of bratty. Low class guy who won't even watch his sister's, you know, baby. won't help anybody out, and is only looking out. For <laughs> Cons his
0: mom out of money.
1: Yeah, constantly asking for a handout from everybody, and clearly is in it for the money and nothing else, you know. And then when he gets there, you know, totally gets seduced just by this lifestyle. But because it's Delon, also manages to just blend right in with all of these people and and seem like he belongs there. I love the ending where it's so weird because it becomes such a mood piece and it's not about motivation or anything like that for these characters as they're sitting across the swimming pool from each other. Delon's kind of has this kind of resignation as he's yeah. standing, standing there with the bags. That reminds me of like Ken Faree at the end of Dawn of the dead where he says, I don't want to leave, you know, like it, yeah. it feels almost like, it's not just about getting away and escaping and getting the money. It's more like, I don't want to leave this life. I don't want to leave this vacation. Whereas his, you know, brother-in-law Louis is like, I'm not enjoying this vacation at all. Like, guys, yeah. can I can I just go home and work on cars?
0: Well, like, like yeah, like I like the way the the safe house pate scene is the whole movie with Grisby, his speech about I don't want to get addicted to this, to I don't want to say I have to send my daughter to private school and then I have to send my daughter to the best private school. I don't want my bed to make itself. That's the whole movie here, where he's trying mm-hmm. to say to them. Uh, you know I get why you guys are addicted to this but like the line Delon has earlier in the film where his brother-in-law saying are you going to look for work and he says yeah if I get addicted I'll just quit right right it's the same thing where he has where he says you know you guys are addicted and this this is no good no good is going to come of this so Mm -hmm. I got to get out of here and Gaban you can see in that scene plays it very interesting where he doesn't want to hear it and he's like well we're all a little stressed for the heist we'll see how this goes afterwards because he's like I don't want my cut but what I was going to um lead into earlier with with saying that I think so highly of Grisby I think so much of Grisby I have no sense of the general public's um sense of this movie and where it stands in the pantheon it was obviously a french new wave favorite and something that they championed very very heavily as critics to me it's one of the essential films like this movies don't get more important than grisby but i realize when i talk to people about it or when we write about it on social media people don't seem to know what the fuck it is. And I was thinking, in fact, the first time I ever heard of it is back when I was working as a film programmer. We had the great Terrence Rafferty come and talk about it very, very early on. There was a re-release done of it. Um, I want to say and uh, like, right when I started there. So I was like 22, 23 years old. So that's gotta be like 2003, 2004 kind of era. And Rafferty came and talked about it and his New York Times review of it was phenomenal. One of those reviews that you read it and then watch the movie and it makes the movie better, you know, uh, to have have read it in advance. And he talked about it. And Rafferty is one of my favorite writers of all time. He, He wrote, he's at least my, no worse than my third favorite film writer of all time. You know, it's him and Bazan and Truffaut in some order. And it completely blew me away, but I had literally never heard the title before. Yeah, my I saw impression
1: it. and my impression too when that happened at that theater was that there was a little cult at that theater that kind of grew over that movie. Your friend Adam Leon even called his debut features, very fine debut feature, gimme the loot, which seemed like a direct <laughs> reference, obviously, to Becker's film. Kind I, of of it kind of sourced from that.
0: I have no idea. It's that movie's named after the Biggie song, uh, but so I I don't I actually don't know whether he's seen um, Tushay Pogresvi. It would kind oh, of somebody.
1: really that's interesting. I mean I knew the Biggie song, but I didn't. I thought he was still making some kind of reference. You don't hear movies with loot in the title too often these
0: days. That's true. I have no idea. I have no idea on that. But you're definitely right that there were a few people. Our friend Eric Frender saw it with me, and it just was. You know instant favorite with him as well. And this is a movie, too, that I've probably only seen eight or nine times. Unlike a lot of my favorites, I think you might be able to overplay this movie. This movie is not bottomlessly deep as a cinematic experience. It's just a perfect movie. It's not one that that just has oceans in it, like Seven Samurai or something or or a Tarkovsky movie you know it's it's not bottomlessly deep so I've always been hesitant to not watch it too much and in fact I try to only see it in the theater it's tried so I've seen it like eight times and I've probably seen it in the theater five times right because film form always plays it because this is completely up Bruce Goldstein's alley and every series they can just like find a way to work. Uh, Touche Pao Grisby into it but it's a movie that I have no sense of where it exists in the world do you have any sense of that did you did yeah. you come to that burn screening when did you first hear of this movie
1: same place yeah burn screening absolutely 100% is where I first saw it uh, I it's funny because I think the reason it's so hard to nail it down or and Becker in general in his career is that it comes at such a weird point a weird transitional point in French cinema in the mid 50s where you know things are starting to change and the traditional sort of poetic realism things like that that Renoir had made so internationally famous are now being rejected but at the same time it, it like any masterpiece it's a culmination of you know 20 years of very huge cinema it's uh Lazarev and uh, Croix de Boom and films like that And says, this is this very peak moment in this film star's career. And this is a peak moment in crime cinema, and French cinema. And we're just going to like hit it. It feels like the top of a mountain in a lot of ways where everything's just been building up to this one huge moment where it's like, this is the definition of this kind of film. And this is it just stripped down to its most essential elements. At the same time, it's clearly, even though it's not something that gets acknowledged by the, the the young French filmmakers who are going to make a huge, you know, uh, impact in the next decade, it clearly sets the tone and the idea for what's coming next, and it clearly sets Melville up for the next film for the films he's going to be making. So to me, that's its importance right there. Is that it's a weird it's a weird period where it's hard to say this film had a huge huge impact, but at the same time. It so clearly has a huge impact.
0: It's yeah, it's rare
1: that- Right in a moment yeah, of, just a huge moment in French cinema.
0: That transitional works are apex works as well. That's a really rare thing to have it be the transitional moment is normally not the apex as well, which happens with this film. You're absolutely right. Um, we should talk a little bit about Becker at some point. I was, I was This just made me think though, talking about all this, and how much I love Grisby. There's there's a funny thing where my favorite kinds of movies, like my comfort food movies, are French gangster films from about 1932 to 1960, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is that is my favorite chunk of cinema. If you tell me hey, it's a French crime movie made in 1952. I'm like, I will watch it right now, you know? And obviously when the French new wave happens in 1960, that changes everything. One thing I was thinking about, you know, these movies, these French crime films, and even Touché, Pau Grisby, they're one of the, the, the victims of the expanding definition of noir, right? Like everything is film noir now. I was, I've been enjoying watching the Criterion Channel's current series on neo-noir, but half of those movies, I'm like, this is not noir. What makes something noir, you know? It's yeah. not just a crime film. It's not just noir. And I would say that it's really important to understand about these movies is that they are not noir films, that these are not noir films in any way, shape, or form. They are crime movies, the French crime movies. The French people don't make noir as much as noir was influenced by the French sensibility in a lot of ways in the European sensibility. Uh, film noir is something I don't like very much. This is one of the stranger things to me that I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I don't like noir because it seems like something I should love. Right? It seems like a genre I should be really into. I love crime cinema. I love desperate stories about people entangled by fate. I love the actors that are associated with noir, people like Barbara Stanrick and Burt Bert Lancaster, you know, all of these different figures you have in the noir world and filmmakers, Fritz Lang. And I realized I was reading Truffaut recently and I realized why I don't like noir. And he referred to the French New Wave guys hated expressionism, right? And Truffaut has a phrase, I'm not sure what the exact phrase is, but it's something like the absurd emotional hysteria of expressionism. And I realized, oh my God, that's what noir is. Because they imported so many of the expressionists, right? And that sort of signature expressionist style that comes from Europe when everybody flees Europe. In pre World War Two, you know, you have all these Hungarians and Germans and uh, and people like that who are the signature directors of film noir, right? And they yeah. bring expressionism over with them: stark black and white, single light long shadows, right? But they also bring the emotional hysteria of expressionism. And I should say, I don't like expressionism either. I don't enjoy German expressionism for the exact, despite Fritz Lang being one of my favorite directors, for the exact reason of that hysteria. And I find the melodramatic qualities um, of noir to be off-putting. I find them very hard to relate to, And the poetic realism of the French crime films in the 30s is an entirely different branch of cinema, right? And those movies, something like Pepe Lamoco is a romance, you know, it's it's a romantic film, you know, Grisby and even Any Number Can Win are as much, real romances, they're not about femme fatales and the danger of women and sex. They're about this sort of poetic worldview and this idea that a beautiful life is possible. You know, even if fate crushes you, just like the dream of a beautiful life, this romantic world view, you know, that love and friendship are true. You know, these run through the French crime movies, like the real brotherhood, the circle of work that draws everyone together in Melville's films, right? That that even as those movies don't go well, there's something real about the emotions and the connection and the beauty of those movies, right? And Le Samurai, his problem is loneliness. That's what Melville sees as most tragic, is loneliness and the inability to connect with anyone, right? That's the worst thing that can happen to you. Whereas... Noir has this hysterical, if you try and talk to a woman, she's going to fuck you over, right? That runs through those movies, right? And just every, everybody's going to fuck you over and the world's a horrible place and there's you're trapped in a nightmare and it feels hysterical and silly to me.
1: Well, as much as Grisby is a film about friendship, as you said, and connections, Noir seems to be like, don't trust anybody. Yeah. Do not enlist anyone in your heist because that's going to fuck you over. You know, there's always going to be someone who's going to fuck everything up. And and they deserve your contempt
0: and pity. They deserve your contempt and pity. Right. Yeah. Even if they were not Rattan, one of the things that I love about this movie is that Rattan never gets fully humiliated by the film. He doesn't, when they put him on the phone, he's not crying and begging for his life. He says, don't get in, don't give in. And and it's his friendship and the strength of his friends that keep him from ever being fully pathetic. He fucks everything up, but he never gets broken. He never becomes pitiable, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas noir is full of pitiable people. And I don't pity anyone in my own life. I don't have that sort of condescending pity for anyone. I'm much more likely to, you know, to be like, ah, you're a fuck up, but so am I. We're in this together. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, there's there's a, there's a an empathy and a compassion, I think, in these films that you don't find in a film noir. I totally agree with that.
0: And I think that's really important. I mean, I think it runs through, I think it's the French crime movie sensibility, you know? And I really think it runs through it. And Jacques Becker was obviously, he was best known as Jean Renoir's assistant right? That's how he came up. He was, he was Renoir's guy. And I think that Renoir's generosity of spirit, right? Which is a very novelistic uh, approach to art, which is that everyone has a right to be understood, you know, both Anna and Vronsky, right? Um, they all have a right to be understood. And that definitely runs through Renoir's films. And I think Becker imports a lot of that humanist sensibility, you know, uh, to it. And I think he's he's his own filmmaker. I think he is a lot more down to earth than than Renoir. And he's not goofy. A lot of Renoir has a lot of goofy comedy. I think that if you had to compare him to any Renoir, he's closer to the Renoir of Tony than even the Renoir of Bet Humane. You know?
1: mm-hmm. It's interesting to consider Max as a character in Grisby where he has to lower himself to do things like I gotta go to this apartment, slaps people around. Now you know it's like everyone else comes off as childish. These kind of tropes that are so that are so prevalent in in noir and things like that is beneath him. You know he yeah. doesn't want to have to like go out there and do the kind of things that it's expected of a, a gangster or a criminal in these movies. And again, I think that's the humanism of Renoir reflecting on there of he's willing to like be friends with Raton, even though he knows he's a fuck-up because he's going to give him the benefit of the doubt and that's who max is he's somebody who appreciates everybody you know and wants to like give people like give people the boost and give people like you know the 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 thumbs up get get them their career going that's what they want he wants to give them what they want that's something i think that Bob flambore kind of did that the next year as well you know this character who is just Generous of spirit, right?
0: Yeah, he seems to understand inherently that life is hard. And it's funny when you talk about him not being a childish or a baby, to compare in any number can win. I love the scene when Alan DeLon, because he's out trying to make it with the model and bring her back to her hotel room and they have a big fight and everything. And he's ignoring Mm -hmm. the calls from Jean Gabin who has said, you have one job, which is to receive my call, right? And DeLon finally gets her back He's gonna he's gonna give her the surprise dinner that's no surprise whatsoever <laughs> the only surprise is you didn't ask me back to your hotel a week earlier right and, uh, and is the
1: biggest of babies
0: <laughs> yes but uh, but the call's coming through and he ignores it and the next day uh, Gaban's character, does this really babyish show of like, I'm packing up my luggage and we're going home and we're not going to do the heist because you didn't answer the call. And you watch that scene and you're like, you fucking baby, you know, just <laughs> like you stop being like such a fucking baby, Gaban. And it's a great comparison to you can't imagine Max doing that. Max would not do the theatrical packing up of luggage to say, heist off, everybody go home, show's over. You blew it. You know, he wouldn't do that and then immediately unpack, you know, when Delon gives him the thinnest possible like, hey, you told me to make it with a with a chorus girl chick. Well, there you go. I did, you know.
1: Yeah, no, he's only going to dish it out if he's trying to give some harsh truths, you know, pointing out the old men dancing with the women to Rattan and things like that. Things they need to understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I also love when he's, when he's uh, the line, when he's thinking about how uh, in his head, how much Rutan has screwed him up the line where he goes, not a tooth in his mouth hasn't cost me a bundle. Right. (laughs) I love that line too. There's something like um, nice about that line. That you're thinking about someone you like in that way. I don't think a band would ever think that way about Francis about the Lawn's character in Any Number Can Win. He wouldn't have the, not a tooth in his mouth hasn't cost me a bundle. It sounds like a parent talking about a kid with expensive orthodonture. You know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't sound like this idiot's going to screw me. It's just like ah, what am I going to do? You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're right when you said <laughs> getting involved with Francis and any number can win is just a mistake from the beginning. He's setting himself up for failure. It's never going to work. You know, him sauntering around as Monsieur grand champ, you know, at the casino is just doomed for failure. And it's all contention. Once they get there, it's all those scenes where he's saying, you know, you didn't pick up the phone. That was your one job he doesn't have that assurance that max does or even the politeness that the characters in grisby have for each other yeah. all the handshaking when they're making the exchange and he's like hey mark are you not gonna say hi to me you know like <laughs> yeah. when they're holding guns at each other you know there's just this this world that is so perfectly honed and everyone is so used to and there's just like a way of doing things and a circle of doing things uh obviously you're going to compare grisby to pepe lamoco they're very very similar films and the idea of how do I escape this circle that I'm so used to? How do I yeah. get out of this? And in Pepe Lamoco, you know, it's sort of the uh, the Robin Hood thing that Tony Stella likes to quote. When when, when uh, Robin Hood leaves Sherwood, that's his doom. Yeah. You know, when he, once he leaves, you know, um, his circle, that's going to be the end of him. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with Grisby where he just realizes, like, I can't get out of this. I just got to bust out the guns and go kill yeah. some gu- motherfuckers, you <laughs>
0: You shouldn't, you should never try to break the red circle. You shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, that's really yeah. what it is. One of the things too, I was thinking that I love about the the French sensibility in crime cinema and thinking of Pepe Lamoco and Grisby is they're so cool and level-headed. And a lot of that is Gaban as a performer, you know, uh, as composed to the as as opposed to the hysteria of noir, that these are very cool to the touch movies. That even as the guns come out and it gets really intense, they're they're cool and they're stylish stylistically cool. Like they're cool movies. These are cool movies, but they're also cool to the touch movies too. Um, and I associate that with the romantic quality of them as well. Is that? sort of there's there's a measure of of faith in the order of the world in these movies and that in some way it's it's trying to break the the order the natural order and not accept that you're an old man and not accept that you can't live like a young man anymore and not accept that you've got to go straight because that's what the crime world is that's trying to break the natural order that's trying to break the circle as you say in some ways that's the problem
1: you can even appreciate you know angelo's goons you know staked out of the exact right place to say oh shit i just saw max i gotta call angelo you know you appreciate that they have this you know really well timed and well-tuned machine working for them where they're gonna get the they're gonna get their hands on the loot they gotta set their guys out and get the get the machine in motion, you know? And then yeah. he has the ambulance truck that he likes to, you know, go back on. You appreciate that. It's cool. The bad guys in this movie are cool, you know? Yes. Even though they're greedy assholes who turn against their friends, they still have, like, they know what they're doing, and you appreciate
0: that. Yes, they're, they're good villains in the sense of that they are a more pure version of the heroes, that if you have an anti-hero, the only difference is that angelo is 20 years in the past from where max is right now Mm -hmm. you know you know if the the things were flipped it'd be the exact same situation that they they're sort of a more purely criminal version of what of what the heroes are one thing that i think also is is fun to compare between the two is in the treatment of riton versus uh francis is that is that francis really sucks and is introduced being an unlikable dickhead um, and that he's kind of the antagonist. He's the one you're rooting against in some way. A lot of the fun of the movie is seeing him get taken down a peg, you know, uh, and seeing him fail at doing this stuff and try and be molded by Gaban. And what it reveals later on in the film is that the flaws of Francis are the flaws of Gaban. He's molded by Gaban, but Gaban is not good enough either, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because there's no classic villain in any number can win there is no angelo character it's just their own (laughs) you know The it's just their own flaws that trip them up and you know ruin the heist at the end so yeah i completely agree with that
0: yeah and it's and it's fascinating because the big middle section that's all on delon is about him getting blown off by the ladies seeming low class not knowing what he's doing and trying to work his way up to being what gaban needs him to be and then that's not enough you know, because Gaban is not enough himself.
1: And the heist itself is uncool. Yes. Going through, you know, it's very unglamorous, going through the tunnels and getting his tuxedo all dirty and then it just comes down to two guys in a mask in a, what seems like a basement you know, yeah. stealing this money where uh, what Mr. Grimp, the uh, the casino owner who's just <laughs> completely disapproving of it seems not so much like hey, you know, it's, it's not about like hey, you guys are stealing my money as like really this is just this does not seem classy at all this casino heist, you know max would never do anything like this
0: yes exactly he's not going to be cawing around in that he's going to be getting out the potato masher grenades that's going to be his part of his plan
1: right so as cool as these characters have like built themselves up to be in their personas at this casino the heist itself is very workmanlike and then not as you know it's not a well-honed machine
0: yeah yeah Exactly, um, I think it's also there's a few things we should we should mention. We should talk about Becker a little bit. Uh, Jacques Becker is a. This is a movie I love. Becker. I'm going to say it the way Rafferty said it. Jacques Becker. Um, Jack Becker. Uh, he is a very interesting director, one I really really admire. But I really, having explored his filmography pretty thoroughly, think he only has three good movies, and they're all phenomenal great movies yes but those are the only good ones you know and they're well far above the threshold of good which are cask door which is uh uh Serge Reggiani and simone signoret based on a real life turn of the century uh criminal couple and then Latru, the hole which is a prison break movie in his final film which i believe is 1960 right just Correct. a few years posthumously
1: released he died in early 1960
0: yeah he died fairly young and those are those are the other movies may or may not be interesting, may or may not have something to recommend them, but those are the three that are great and they're phenomenally great and they sort of form a loose trilogy in my mind because they're so interconnected in their themes and ideas and style.
1: And Tru is another great film about friendship, you know, about not not thinking about your own goals and your own, you know, selfish needs, but like working together and looking out for other people and the failure of that ultimately and it's a beautiful fucking movie.
0: Yes. Yes. And I really love Castor which I sometimes feel like is the orphan of the three but again mm-hmm. I don't sure. I don't know what people think of these movies. I think Castor is Signoret's best performance. Um, and pro- yeah. maybe yeah. maybe Reggiani's too although he's not he's not blow you out of the theater great in that movie. And it is and it is funny to mention that they're a trilogy because technically, technically, not technically, through some technicality, I don't understand. Touche Pile Grisby is the first part of a trilogy that gets called the Max Lementor trilogy. And I have seen all three of them uh, and I have no idea what makes them a trilogy other than that they're all written by... um, by Simonon and these other two films, Jean Gabin is one in one of them and, uh, and Lino Ventura's in the other, I, I cannot connect them to these movies. And they are Tonton Le Flingers and uh, Le Caves Rib, Rib Beef. And I, I sort of don't get what connects them at all. Uh, and they're both much slicker. They're not Becker. They're each one's like a journeyman director whose work I'm not really familiar with. Uh, Le Lakav is not notably good, but um, Tonton Le Flinger's is interesting. Uh, and, you know, the connections are a little weird. Tonton Le Flanger's, um Simenon did not write the screenplay, but Odriad wrote the script on that one. And it's based on a book by Simenon called grisby or not grisby to grisby or not grisby right which seems like it must have something to do but again it's not translated into english so i don't hmm. really know what it has to do with touche Pajo grisby uh have you seen either of them tauntauns is fun I, that was a movie i constantly tried to book at the theater i programmed and could not bring it together in that way
1: is it just uh, hard to get or it wasn't a place to put it
0: it just always had rights issues and print yeah. issues and stuff, and I'm mm. not even sure if there's an English language subbed version of Lekov. The version I saw of it didn't have subs on it, so maybe I'd get more out of it if it actually had subtitles. <laughs> maybe the
1: it. connection would be more obvious in that case.
0: But he's not playing. He's not playing Max in it. Gaban is not playing Max in it, even though it's called part of the Max Lamentor, Max the yeah. Liar trilogy. Um. And and, uh, and Tauntaun Ventura is not playing Angelo. So I truly have no idea why those are thrown together. I think it's probably one of those things like the uh, uh, Jerry Elephant Last Days trilogy where there's just some popular imagination that connects them all together in some way.
1: Have you seen the other Vernoy film, um, The Sicilian Clan, which is the other team up? I like that one too. It's uh, got a lot of similarities to... Any any number can win. Uh, mainly in that they have a, another contentious relationship, even though they're working together. And this one, Gaban plays uh, an Italian, if you can believe that, uh, <laughs> head of a Sicilian family. And they uh, decide to go with this heist that Delon brings to them. And Delon's like a cop killer. He's like escaped from prison. Mm-hmm. And Lido Ventura as the great Commiss- Commissaire Legoff. What a great name for a police commissaire, which is great too because he never played. A cop for Melville. So you kind of get like what, what that would have been like as he is the Javert to uh, DeLon's uh, Jean Valjean. in this one, he's chasing him throughout the movie. But uh, it's based on a, a novel by the guy who wrote Rafifi. has a great Morcani score. Uh, it has, um, it has among the best scenes of Alan DeLon whacking an eel while a nude, somebody redhead <laughs> watches. And again, there's uh, DeLon going undercover for the heist. Uh, a picture of him fucks everything up ultimately. And uh, has another gripping final 10 minutes where his fate is decided. It's not as, you know, amazing as the one in Any um, Number Can Win. But it's, uh, it's another very fun and entertaining movie.
0: Yes. Ver- Vernoy is a director that got done dirty by the French New Wave in some way. Is that he became, he made movies that were much bigger than the French New Wave movies. It's it's easy to forget now, but the French New Wave movies were, were smaller. They were not the big super hits by and large. Mm-hmm. And Vernoy was making the big super hits. I don't know. I, again, I think the comparison is good is, is Vernoy is Ocean's Eleven Soderberg and, uh, and Becker and the French New Wave guys are the limey Soderbergh,
1: mm-hmm. I think
0: is a fair comparison. Um, And Vernoy sort of got done dirty. He has a few movies that I like quite a bit. He also uh, has um, uh, Cent Mill Dollars au Soleil, which is another one that uh, Odiard wrote the script for for him. And that's Paul uh, Belmondo and Lino Ventura. And it's sort of like a take on wages of fear. You know, it's it's one of the the wages of fear type knockoffs. And Belmondo and Vino Ventura are so good and look so much like, in their own way, they're like alternate reality Vanel and Montand in a funny <laughs> way. That you, it's it's just even the casting conjures it. And he has a lot of interesting films that uh, are basically forgotten in the United States. Even any number can win. I don't think has any particular. Uh, reputation here does it uh it's just he got caught by the wayside because he belonged to the you know the tradition of quality that the french new gave guys don't like and i don't think really any of his movies are seen or thought of as being um great and then he starts doing a bunch of international co-productions in like the mid 70s and 80s uh, like like the spy thriller with Yul Brenner and a thousand billion dollars and movies like that that aren't um, feel like international in some way and those those are pretty personality free in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but I, I do feel like he's somebody who who has gotten
1: oh for sure who's gotten I mean,
0: screwed by by history
1: I mean that's the bullshit hypocrisy of the new way politics anyway right is we love Hollywood movies and then you've gone to Hollywood.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he does, you know, he actually, he has a funny movie called A Monkey in Winter that might be uh, what the prime. Gaban is too old for this movie. It's Gaban and, and Belmondo um, where, you know, the, the whole plot is, you know, about an old man who meets up with this young guy and the young guy wants him to be wild and crazy and he is just too old and doesn't want to do it and get drawn back into it, Right. <laughs> and uh and that's that one's basically there's not really any story except like gaban just wants to be done with this he just wants to be <laughs> done with it and belmondo like being a goofball in it it's a it's it's a comedy uh and sort of that late uh late 50s early 60s kind of um sense of humor i don't know how to describe it better other than the, the William Peter Blatty when he's writing comedy sense of humor. You know what I'm talking about?
1: <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. That's a good way of phrasing something.
0: And uh, yeah, but but is an interesting director. Again, he probably has more movies that are good and worthwhile movies than Jacques Becker. But the ones that are good are not as good as Becker's movies. As the top
1: three, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say about him. And so, you know, the, the screenwriters, both of these movies, I don't know if I made it clear, but both of these movies, um, another connection, Any Number Can Win, and Touche Power Grisby, were written by Albert Simonon. Uh, yeah. Both of these movies were written by Albert Simonon. Uh, so they have that connection as well. And it was uh, based on a, uh, the, the uh, Any Number Can Win. Was based on an american novel that had been published in the Siri noir series Siri noir was like their version france's version of the giallo a book series that had black covers so they that kind of uh story became known as a Siri noir type story and that is a another interesting connection as sharing a screenwriter which is not something i would have thought of about these movies before we started to research them and and put them together in some way i was a little bit surprised to hear that
1: yeah for sure they're don't seem like they're written by the same person (laughs) but again i i I think that any number can win borrows a, a kind of poetic beauty from grisby for certain scenes and the moments that you say like are the pinnacle moments i would say on top of Louis saying you know he's doesn't want to get sucked into the addiction of luxury the other uh, moment that you know really defines what I think for is interested in a number can win is when he goes to visit Mario uh, to get the plans Mario is now running like a spa or right or like a beauty salon with his uh, wife and much like Max Mario kind of like gives him all the stuff and is like here you go good luck have fun with it I'm I'm out you know I'm old and I don't feel well and you know, I'm, I'm out of this game. You do I'm, it. I'm not going to chase like, you know, and I, and I think I even maybe hint that like, maybe you shouldn't be doing this, Mr. Charles, you know, maybe this isn't the right path for you either, but I am definitely not interested.
0: Yeah. And I love when the wife busts in, he's got this uh, sort of uh, masculine domineering wife. He's a little short, little bespectacled frail looking man. And she busts in and she's like, And they're like, she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, Mac, uh, he's just showing me some plans for a a condo he's going to build. And she's like, well, get out of the construction business. And he should too. And slams the door and leaves. And I love, because Gaban turns to his friend and says, why don't you slap her yap? And he just sort of meekly says, she wouldn't like that. And you realize (laughs) like, well, he's got a good life. He doesn't want to screw it up. He's got a real relationship now. It's not a world where you walk around hitting people. You know, and that's mm-hmm. that's the way you should be living. And but having to apologize to people like Gaban's character about that, uh, it's a great demonstration of the the total inversion of value systems and sort of how silly, Gaban's and grotesque value uh, Gaban's value system is. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I actually like about any number can win, is with both characters. It's a portrait of self-destructive people and self-destructive self-destruction. And I think it does get at the joys of fucking up your life, that being that kind of person, I think it gives full birth to in a way that noir never would of screwing up your life is actually really, really fun. There's actually, if you're a self-destructive personality There's there's a real joy and appeal to it. That's why so many gangster movies, especially American gangster movies, which because of the traditions of the Hayes Code have a tendency to be moralist tales and you can see, you know, Scorsese is the the living embodiment of this American tradition where it's all fun. Until the end, in which it tells you, "No, this was really bad," and they get their comeuppance. Even, even that's why I didn't like a prophet. The uh, the Jaco uh, Odiard film is just this is all super fun. But let me just tell you why it's bad at the very end, you yeah, know. And I yeah. think that these that the American gangster films actually get how awesome it is to be James Cagney. You know in in those movies i think they get that this is actually awesome and that that's part of the the problem of dealing with something like goodfellas or wolf of wall street is that yes they have these simplified moralistic endings but they really sell you on the awesomeness and the joy and the fun of this depraved awful behavior as well you kind of can't deny it that's why people put posters of it up in their bedrooms and stuff it's not because it's this bleak meditation on the nature of existence because it's awesome, <laughs> right? And and I think that there's a lot of that spirit and any number can win, but without the moralizing, you know, well, it I think the moral have, yeah it's not attacked on moralism. It's the theme it's demonstrating the entire time. You know? Right,
1: right. The, the the form of moralizing it takes is simply what I was saying before of you know, this is all seems very beneath Max and something yeah. he doesn't want to have to do. And the equivalent of course of the Mario scene in Grisby is perot's wife when they bring uh the kid down to torture him and it's humorous that she's like butting in and they're like what are you doing we're trying to fucking torture this guy come on <laughs> yeah. and you know she looks at uh, max and says like thanks a lot max for bringing this shit over here you know like yeah. we got i'm trying to run an ordered household here you're playing gangster and he can only kind of sheepishly be like uh ah, sorry you know and while perot says that great line which, you know where they're like, um, she's we'll, like, tell you, what? We'll, we'll tell you what's happening later, and he says, "If we feel like it,
0: yeah, it's great, it's great. What's going on? We'll t- we'll tell you later, and just the way he's grabbing them, if we if we feel like it." it's it is it's great too and it does feel so, like so,
1: the, so there's that food like the that foolishness that you know like you guys are a bunch of old men what are you doing you know what are you doing running around with these guns
0: but you don't have any choice and that either that that's yeah. sort of the bed you've made and you've got to lay in it i think that there's absolutely no moralism to touche pas grisby whereas oh, yeah. The, whereas
1: yeah. yeah it's in place of moralizing i
0: would yes. say yes well it's moral constellation and moral sphere is just very very different from that Whereas something, you know, things ultimately go bad for the people and any number can win. But it's the moment it becomes most beautiful. You know, it's like the blooming and realization mm. of the destruction they've always wanted. There's something about you've built to this. This is the life you've always wanted. This is actually beautiful for these characters that this is this is this is the wall you're running into head on at full <laughs> speed. This is what you you wanted in some ways, you know
1: yeah yeah i mean delon like lingers over the his picture in the newspaper
0: <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> way, it's love... not like
1: that's like half like oh shit but also like huh <laughs> you know <laughs> i like that this has happened i like that like i'm now a famous criminal you know i'm not <laughs> going to be like recognized as as somebody that that uh need for destruction is kind of deep inside of him which is not the kind of rebel he's introduced as he's introduced as like a pathetic asshole you know this complete brat and now he's like wow i could actually be somebody so i I don't want to and i don't want to (laughs) leave
0: i also we were talking about perot's life i was just remembering i also love the moment where um max promises that nothing's going to happen to perot right he makes this Mm -hmm. promise that nothing's going to happen and And Max says, you know, I will promise you he'll bring him back. And she says, at my age, you don't get any second chances. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, that's absolutely true. I feel like I'm not quite at that age yet, but like I'm headed towards that age. When I watch Touche Pile Grisby, more than with any number can win, I think about what it's actually like to get old and what it's actually like to have that experience there's also i love when perro sprains his ankle jumping out of the way of the grenades right and he's limping the rest of the movie he's like i think i sprained my ankle that made me think about when i was watching the the Palma documentary recently and uh they asked him why you stopped making films and he said i physically couldn't do it if you can't physically handle making a movie and it's physically taxing, you can't do it anymore. And you do, you just get physically taxing your payroll. You're going to sprain your ankle doing this shit. Like you can't <laughs> do it forever. You're just too old. Yeah. And like I, that happens to me. I'll just sit up some mornings and be like, I'm in pain from sitting up. I cannot do what I was, what I was supposed to do today because my shoulder hurts for completely mysterious reasons, you know? And I I think that is really true And the other big aging scene that I remember, uh, or that the other big aging scene that I noticed this time was when they go to the safe house and Raton has the moment where he's looking in the mirror as they're getting ready for bed and he's sort of pulling on his face and looking in his own eyes and having that moment of like, am I old? am I fat? Is Josie only with me as the hustle? She's not with me because I'm the cool guy who's outside of the hustle. She's with me because I'm a mark. When did this happen? When did I get old? You know, and I definitely feel that way as somebody who's never, who after I got divorced definitely was like, hey, relationships just aren't for me. And you meet a lot of young women and you go, you do look in that mirror and you're like, I'm too old. I'm the old guy out here. This is no good. I'm the boogeyman dancing with these women. And you doubt what any of this means. If you're in your 40 and you're dating a 28 year old, you're like, what am I even doing here? You know,
1: Contrast it to max who looks so confident when he's getting ready for bed. And so yes. comfortable is like, I like being an old
0: man. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That you have to, you have to give up on it. You have to accept the natural order of things. And basically Max can accept it and Riton can't, but also in a funny way, you know, any number can win is all about not being able to uh, accept the natural order of things, which is that like, you can't rob a casino and get away with it. You can't do the perfect score that sets everything up. You know what you're better off doing? Selling your house for 15 million and buying a little hotel somewhere. You know, Mm -hmm. that is actually what the reality of it is.
1: You know, especially since it's all transference that he is basically only recruited Francis because he needs a young version of himself to do all the physical stuff and to do the seducing and the undercover stuff and it's like you can't you know recapture youth vicariously through this other character and then kind of just <laughs> yeah. transpose your expertise and your you know your purpose into this young guy that's not going to work he's a different person than you are
0: yeah it's it's interesting it's also funny too thinking about just other reflections of the movie you mentioned the scene early on where um Angelo is dealing drugs at the club and Pero is like, this is my club. The people you have dealing drugs are low-class clods who don't fit in here. You're like scaring my real classy clientele away. You can't use them anymore. And so Max goes, wait, I know somebody for it. And he goes to Marco and he's like, you're classy enough to hang out with me. You can do this job, replace Angelo's dude. It's funny. The dude who gets replaced is Francis, from any number who can win, you know what I mean? (laughs) This guy who just like just can't fit in and it's all a put on for him in some way. And I think that that's an interesting uh, comparison between these two movies is how much criminal behavior, how much of any behavior and any of your identity is something you put on, how much it's something that's inflicted on you as well, is that we get old even when we don't wanna be, but being classy is something we can always try to do and dress up in but is that actually true is classy something you're kind of born with it like max Mm you know or it's it's not something you can
1: affect yeah absolutely and i think that's another reason that louis is just not into the heist. the the, again the mechanic the brother-in-law of delon uh, because he's like hey they're like hey we got this exciting heist that we're going to pull off oh yeah yeah he's going to be like you know a Uh, Like a playboy, like a cool, rich playboy is going to seduce all the women. And I'm going to be, you know, the guy sitting by the pool in the sunglasses. What do I get to do? You're the chauffeur. (laughs) Yeah. That's you working (laughs) outside and wait for me.
0: (laughs) This also reminds me of the scene I love too, where um, early in the film, Delon has a bartender, like what's the deal with all these women? And he breaks everything down. And he's like, what? I love the moment in that scene where he's like, what about that blonde? And he goes, she's more likely to be your competition than a conquest, right? Because she's like, (laughs) you know, that lesbian. That's a
1: great scene where he pays the bartender to kind of give yeah. him the, the the info on everybody.
0: But there's one aging woman and he's like, what about her? And she's like, oh, she's a fake countess. Like, she pretends to be a countess to meet men here. Or and who is
1: that? And who is that? Did you recognize who? her?
0: No, who is it?
1: Uh, that's uh, Lola from Grisby. Oh Max's my girl from Grisby. goodness.
0: I did not recognize that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but so later on Delon is trying to do the heist and she comes up to him at the bar pretending to be the countess and pretending to be the countess and he like blows her off and does something low class like buys her a drink and walks away and she has the line I must be getting old I can't tell a gentleman from a pimp
1: That's the other scene that yeah is so great that she is so into him and then he blows her off and then she has that line of like oh that guy is not that guy's a fake like he says me he he's a total phony yeah yeah
0: and that's that plays into what we're talking about is can you tell a gentleman from a pimp what what is the difference between the classiness of max and the the sort of patheticness of gaban's character and any number can win what's the difference between raton and francis which i think are massively different characters i think is, is oh, you know, sure What's the difference between a gentleman and a pimp in all of these movies? And even though it's implied earlier on uh, that Raton definitely has some in and where Gaban has the line early in Grisby, like you're staying out late, spending a lot of money trying to impress Josie. You know what you would have been doing when you were younger? She would have been coming and meeting you She's at the hotel with your the bell. money. Yeah.
1: <laughs> She'd be getting your drinks. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Which is definitely like, you know, a passage that I think that, you know, certainly is mm-hmm. somebody as self-destructive as me, you go through when it's like, <laughs> lady, you got to buy me a drink. I'm adorably poor, you know, and to like, ah, uh, she seems, I guess I got to buy this person a drink, which like, I never would have. I never would have in my entire life. And you realize, I, I no, guess don't I gotta, buy anybody a drink ever.
1: I guess I got a clue in on this huge heist that we have secretly <laughs> stored away. Well, Nothing bad can come from that.
0: Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, do you know, sorry, speaking of recognizing people, Carla Marie, who plays Jeanette in this movie, unbelievable stunner, one of the most beautiful women you will ever see. Do you know anything about her? Nothing. There is nothing about her out there. She is in virtually no other movies. I recognized her. She she has a very small part in Zazie Dan La Metro. She's like the wife who has stage fright and is trying to get him his costume and gets interrogated by the cops and all of that, right? Gotcha. That's her. That's all. I recognized her from, and I was like going through her. She doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, right? And so I was going through her filmography, looking for it. And I was like, oh, she's in The Four Musketeers. I don't remember her in The Four Musketeers at all. And I went and I looked, and it's the fucking Italian Four Musketeers.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, is the Belmondo starring in the Musketeers. It, yeah, and like just
0: I, for people who don't know, John and I are big fans of swashbucklers. The Italian swashbucklers are the absolute worst. Like late 60s Italian swashbucklers are as bad of movies as there are. And being like, maybe I'll watch it for her. I'm like, I'm not going to watch it for her. She is in one movie that I'm curious if you've seen. Just say
1: Delon playing Zorro. Why would you put a mask over that face? What's wrong with you?
0: Imagine being able to drain the charm out of Belmondo and Delon. Imagine being so (laughs) bad that you're like, I don't find Delon charming. Um, And that should be mentioned as why any number can win works is you have this unlikable Fran- character francis but it's delon who can make you love anybody right he's irresistible mm-hmm. and that's always the secret of movie stars and why you can have them play he's, unlikable. he's cool ones. he's
1: gonna pull that line about shaking the street light at you and you'd be like oh delon i'm back <laughs> in horse like interesting. you
0: you shake a street light and it doesn't fall out uh, you know, it's
1: interesting. I read, I had no idea about his the time in his career that Any Number uh, Can Win came about. He had been off in Italy making all the Visconti films. So when he came back to France, he was not in demand at all and had to kind of lobby for this part. And ultimately yeah. the deal he made was, he said, I'll take a back end of, you know, the uh, the rights to, uh, in other countries and made apparently a ton of money off. It was, you know, a unique deal. And Gabin complained he made more money than he did. Uh, But he did not, you know, just it wasn't like, of course, they're going to cast Delon. It was like he was at a point where they were like, yeah, I don't think Delon's a big draw. He's an art house
0: guy. Yeah,
1: Yeah. he's not right. He's not going to sell a movie.
0: But the last uh, Carla Marie film that I'm really curious if you've seen because it's a movie I've always wanted to see is Boat on the Grass. Right. Which is the movie Mm -hmm. that Gerard Brock directed and is written by Polanski. And I've never seen it. And she's the star of it, apparently. So I was I was wondering, like, this is a very hard to find movie. Is this worth checking out, John? But if you even you haven't seen it, I'm going to go on the record that literally no one has ever seen it. Literally no. (laughs) It's Gerard (laughs) Brock directed, written by Polanski, who is a bad human being and should be in jail. But he also writes things that I like. Are you aware of that? <laughs> I'm interested in the things he writes while believing he should be in jail. It's a very simple equation. I think everybody can follow it. No, and and Gerard Brock is an interesting director in his own right. He was, he was Polanski's screenwriter on a lot of things, but he also did stuff like uh, The Bear without Polanski, you know, and he mm-hmm. directed oh, sure. his own movies mm-hmm. that yeah. are interesting. So I guess that's one to seek out with her. This movie is full of like, interesting little, little actors, you know, who else I love in, in Grisby is the, the guy who uh, plays uh, the uncle, who's going to the fence, who's going to sell the money, who's going to sell Mm -hmm. the gold bullion for him. That guy is great as well. And he's like in nothing, you know, he's Char O'Lettie and he's like in barely anything. He's like a character actor and just those eyebrows. That's one of the thing Grisby does so good is just having characters show up and just look fucking perfect for the part like we mentioned with lino ventura he just looks so fucking perfect that it's a roadmap for how to make him a movie star you know in that movie
1: yeah not only the way he carries himself but just that face you know i mean he has some he's somehow able to have like a, a face that is wily and mournful at the same time you know no matter what he's playing i love I, I love that uh, both the ambulance guys and Angelo, when they try to ensnare Max and Raton early in the film, are indignant in a way that they shouldn't be, where it's like, oh, come on, Max. Like, we're just trying to kidnap you here. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. And and Angelo being like, uh, you know, keeping up this pretense, even after it's obvious that the cards are on the table and it's obvious what's really happening is like, uh, well, uh, we would have asked somebody else to do this job if you're going to be like that about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Listen hey asshole out.
0: you're trying to kidnap me and torture me get the fuck out of my apartment are you kidding me yeah it actually reminds me when he when gaban has them trapped in the elevator right and they're coming to kill him he is trapped in the elevator with a gun and he fires off the gun and they're like you're crazy it reminds me <laughs> a lot of um david harris and thin blue line where he he's caught naked breaking into the house trying to Stab the husband, rape the woman, stab the wife. David Harris, and the husband shoots at him. And when he gets caught by the police, he says to police, "That guy was crazy. He tried to kill me." Reminds <laughs> me of that exact same thing. Of like, no, 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 they're not the crazy ones. Do you understand <laughs> what's going on with this here?
1: Yeah, that's it's called self-preservation, guys. You were
0: <laughs> you were trying to
1: kidnap him. But yeah, I love the supporting cast. Grisby is amazing because it's a film that's clearly the world of this one character, like any Jean Gabin film, you know, yeah. where it's like he's the whole center of this universe. It's his show 100%, but at the same time, everybody is cool and everybody, like you said, looks exactly right and is interesting in their own right, even though the film is so clearly Gabin's movie. And I, I appreciate, too, the supporting characters and Any Number Can Win, like I said, Mr. Grimp, when he shows up, you know, these characters just seem like, you know, it's different in, because Grisby is undoubtedly Max's world and he's so comfortable in it and they're so out of place in the casino, Yeah, you know, in any number can win. So it's really them kind of coming and being considered outsiders by these women who he fails to pick up and by this casino manager who's like, this is one shoddy way to be robbing my casino, you know? Yeah. You get a feeling he's like, you know, been robbed a few times and is like, are you guys serious? This is,
0: yeah, (laughs) this, this is the best plan. I also love the moment though, where they hear the door slam with Gaban leaving, but Delon's still there and they all turn around and he's like, nope, still
1: here. (laughs)
0: Underbaki and associates still here, still here. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's great but also wait there's a door that goes straight into the vault like they couldn't have used that
0: somehow he had to go through the hole you've got to get the door open from the inside no you gotta it's go good.
1: undercover and get backstage to get through vent to get into the elevator shaft there's also a door that opens straight into the vaults <laughs>
0: but i do i do maybe like, we could blow it up or something yeah i do like that it's reasonably realistic you know yeah, I, I do yeah. like that it's it's reasonably plausible but it's also its plausibility is also what makes it you be able to see all of the holes in it and go of course they're going to fail yeah
1: From no beginning. especially that delon's reaction is like you know i've had fun being a playboy and you know um and you know taking this woman to bed and everything and now it's like now i gotta crawl through a vent and risk my life on the and the way that he handles the gun, especially as he's like climbing into the shaft and it keeps getting in the way, you know, yeah. it's, it's a very satisfyingly realistic portrayal of like sneaking into a casino vault.
0: Yeah. It is funny too. Cause we're talking so much about like what makes somebody actually classy and what makes them low class, you know, what's a gentleman and what's a pimp. When I was watching the, this movie this time, right. They all, they both have floor shows, like every great, melville movie but also every french climb movie which are if you don't know what the french floor shows are like from these movies it's a series of women in sort of like one piece bathing suits with a lot of feathers come out and dance in a very simple way vaguely in unison and when um moreau and her friend when josie and her friend do their dance in touche Pile gresby and it looks fucking terrible it's awful yeah i'm like <laughs> is this supposed to look good or bad. And what I realized is I was thinking of the sequence in singing in the rain, right? At the big musical number at the end, when he's, when he's going up his, you know, he's coming up in his rise to fame and he starts out doing the baggy pants. And then it cuts to him doing the same number at various levels to where he's in the Ziegfeld Follies doing it in a tuxedo with mm-hmm. women in the plumes. When I watch these movies, the *Can* Casino one and the club and Moreau's dance and Perot's club, I don't know what's supposed to be the baggy pants and what's supposed to be the tuxedo. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can't tell the difference between what a classy French floor show looks like and what a terrible sleazy one looks like. Yeah, I just yeah, have I think no in this sense case,
1: of that. I think in this case, especially Fats' place is like uh, kind of like a glorified brothel. You're know, yeah. right. I mean, you know, they're just kind of picking up these girls. The dancing, I think, is not a big deal.
0: <laughs> yeah but it, can you determine probably the don't difference have a choreographer. Between, the, between the dancing and the Con casino dancing can you see any Difference I can see with no. the Moreau where the Moreau stuff is like uh, When like a 12 year old girl's like Me and my friend made a dance and then They dance and you're like great looks great Bye you know? <laughs> I
1: know if you're working at a place where The electrician you're jealous that the electrician Is goosing other girls not just you You probably belong there <laughs> That's probably the right place for you.
0: <laughs> and, and but also in terms of classiness, another thing I was thinking watching this time is the not to spoil the ending of Touche Power Grisby, but Gaban has been dating this rich lady, right? And the film's sort of bittersweet happy ending is he hangs it up to become this rich lady's boy toy right? That that's his life. Now he's going to ride around in her convertible, right? She's going to be taking him out to dinner. He's going to go stay in her apartment after he's lost all the money. She's the boy toy in the scene where they first, next time up, he comes
1: to that place for cake, they're not going to let him in.
0: That's, that's how I always think the movie is going to end. Every time I think that the, the server is going to suggest he goes across the street and it never ends that way. You know, every time I think it's good, that's because it's so perfect. But I also think that's what's brilliant about Becker's movie is that there is a note of, can he sustain this? Because he goes to use the phone and he puts on glasses. You wear glasses now? Only for reading because he's getting old. But he goes to call and he gets the call that Ratan has died and she's sitting there alone and she's looking around and her face is like, I'm not fucking coming here again. You know what I mean? Her face is not like, what a great day with Max. Her face (laughs) is like, Where did this guy take me? Well, this will be the one time we do this. But you can see like there is a note of tension of like, will he be accepted in that world? Or is it all a put on at some point? Is she going to say, I can't believe I mistook a pimp for a gentleman, you know? Yeah. Is that going to happen? But But he is a
1: gentleman. He even changes suits to go over to see her. That's the thing. (laughs) He's wearing, he looks phenomenal. Top, he looks 10, he's a 10 out of 10 in the suit that he's lounging around in and she calls and says come on over and bang me and he's like I gotta change my suit. Why? You look great. (laughs) Because it's Max, that's why. Because he's a gentleman. He's gonna change suits to go and spend the afternoon with this lady.
0: (laughs) And this this movie you see Gaban in a suit once and you're like, I gotta wear suits the rest of my life. What do pajamas I, I re- too. pajamas too? I gotta go get some pajamas. The black turtleneck he wears, and uh in any number can win. it's like, I gotta wear turtlenecks, I gotta wear pajamas now. <laughs> no, every time I watch this, I'm like, I should get a pair of pajamas. Meanwhile, I get incredibly overheated in my sleep, so pajamas would be a nightmare for me, but it's every time. But that's that the thing scene- too when
1: he when he throws the little uh you know hissy fit and he's I'm packing up and we're we're leaving. <laughs> come on how does he not have like 10 suitcases (laughs) give me a break you should be sprawled all around the hotel room
0: (laughs) i love the detail when he first gets out of prison and comes home and he looks in the closet and there's two suits in plastic he's like what are these and she's like i guess you ordered them they showed up the day after you got arrested and he's like oh i guess i'll put these suits on (laughs) but but when he does go over to like hook up with the classy lady the rich lady uh that striped dress she's wearing this again ties into the floor show thing where it's like, it looks so silly that dress. And it's funny how symbols of classiness evolve where it's like, is she supposed to be stylish or she's supposed to look like somebody dropped a Christmas present? Yeah. You know what funny, I mean? like,
1: no, it's funny. Duddy. It's old. It's old. It's not trendy. I would say would be my guess,
0: but it, it has one of the great, um, moments where she sits on his lap, he kind of pulls her onto his lap and she looks terrified and he goes to kiss her and she puts her hand sort of over her own mouth and turns her head away, right? And Max has this look on his face like, I can't believe this. But then she goes up and walks to the ba- to the bedroom and it's like, don't kiss me, come bang my back out. That's what I really want here, you know? <laughs> Um, But she also says to him, I don't really know who you are in that moment. And I think about that a lot, too, because that's something I've had a lot of women say to me as I've gotten older is like, I don't understand who you are or what you do with your time or what your life is. And I was thinking like that is part of getting older is people. You don't have a second chance. People don't know you. They can't know you. You know, it's really hard to be known by somebody the older you get. And so the illusion that you're going to make these big connections maybe is an illusion. I think that's what's happening a little bit with her moment at at the restaurant there where she's looking at the scumbag restaurant, you know, at the at the place where all of the John Wicks eat, you know, that she <laughs> looks at them and, and maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe this is a little bit of an illusion too, you know? Yeah. But then yeah. Gaban comes back and you're like, nah, they're fine.
1: Yeah, but you also realize, you know, like with like it what a devastation it is for him to lose Ratan, you know, in his life. Yeah. That it's not so much losing the loot, it's losing this friend. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That the, the friendship matters. He, yeah. Yeah. Big time. That it's not so much this world as like this relate this single relationship that he has.
0: Well, there is something that's like, who am I gonna hang out with? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That that really is a hard um question to answer you know what i mean when you get older i think about that all the time now you know our dream life me and you john was to be carl reiner and mel brooks you know when we get old to live next door to each other and come over and watch movies where people say secure the perimeter to each other right (laughs) and now that carl reiner's passed away i worry so much for mel brooks i worry about him more than i did when ann bancroft died it's obviously much sadder when Anne Bancroft dies, but I worry. Like, what is Mel Brooks doing now? Who's watching the movie with them? Nobody's going to come over and have that relationship to him that Carl Reiner had, and nobody's going to have that relationship to to Ritton, to to Max that Raton had. You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's tragic in a really subtle way that I think is is nice because you know you really aren't feeling like. And, and I just have to throw out there, watching it this time, I never had this reaction before because I always thought I always misremember that they do get the the gold converted to cash and that's what blows up in the car. There's still the gold bars. They could get that money. Give me a break. Like there's a truck coming. Are you serious? (laughs) Shoot your machine gun at the truck and they'll leave, you know, get the goddamn loot. There's no reason not to.
0: I think the Um, implication is that it's melted in the fire that even if they get it out, you have like cases of dripping gold bullion that what are you going to do with it, you know?
1: maybe but I, there there could have been more effort anyway that's not the point that's completely yes. not the point because trying to, watch trying out
0: to there's it. guys in a truck no you're <laughs> absolutely right
1: uh, what I'm saying is at the end there don't touch the loop because it's not you know what you're <laughs> after it's not ultimately what the goal is and what you've lost is not this material thing that you know you've tried to preserve it's this way of life and this uh, who you are you know Max loses part of who he is at the end of the movie and that's the real tragedy of the film um, and again you know he's not addicted the way that the characters in any number can win are whereas the only destruction is the only thing these guys would accept and that's why it's this beautiful ending uh where destruction is the most, so beautifully um, captured on film for max it's you know this is the what i this is why i know and this is who i am and he's lost a little bit part of it so it's one of the most subtly devastating endings of a movie
0: yeah it it's I mean, it's
1: even it's while great. you're like, Max will be fine, you know, like <laughs> Max is Max and he'll be fine.
0: Yeah, I think, but it is, you know, I, and I guess you're right. Mel Brooks will be fine, but it is, you know, you don't have second chances. It's like 35 rums. You drink the 35 rums when there's a, a thing that has passed that will never come back, you know? And when you're young, there's none of those moments. There there are no moments when you're Francis's age That will never come back that have passed and never come back, but that when you get older, you start realizing you got to drink the 35 rums, because your daughter got married, you know that this is, this is just what it's going to be,
1: you're going to lose your Spock. it's going to happen.
0: It is going to happen and it's tragic. Can we just go do, because I'm, I'm looking at my notes, can we just do some quick hits of things that I love that we haven't gotten to touch of on course. yet? And then a few questions and maybe too big of a conversation to start up this late in it, right? First off, Touche Pau Grisby, the record he plays, we haven't mentioned it, like his go-to yes, jam his on the Juppock. Yes. yes, he goes in and he plays his own theme song. Uh, I love that thing. You know what it really reminds me of is the theme song from Berlin Alexander Oh yeah. They yeah, sound absolutely. they sound so similar. I was actually playing them both this morning and listening to them back to back and I'm convinced it's like they mu- he must have told Pierre Rabin to listen to that. It's just they're they've got such a central theme played I think it's in a harmonica that's playing it, but not harmonica, a melodica that's playing it but yeah, especially
1: the- that it's funny to say late in his career because he was so young but like that late in fassbender's career he was making movies a lot more about older characters you know i wouldn't be surprised to hear he was thinking about Grisby at that point yeah yeah i thought you're going to say it reminded me of it reminded you of when we used to go to the candlelight in and you'd be like i gotta go play my song and you go to the jukebox and play rock me like a hurricane
0: <laughs> it's my theme look if i'm going to sit down and eat wings "Rock You like a hurricane needs to be playing and, you know, and that's, that's back when the Josie's took me seriously, John.
1: <laughs> the Josie's of the candlelight, the Josie's of the, candlelight. they had an amazing floor show there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Remember how on my honeymoon, I wanted to stay in the candlelight in how I wanted to rent the candlelight in for a week. For some reason,
1: that was an inspired for, idea.
0: For some reason. Now I'm divorced, John. I don't know why, <laughs> if those two things are related. I also, I do love though, that, that him being domesticated is the happy ending. I think for people like me and like Gaban's character in Francis, that the domestication, they can't understand that that's the happy ending, you mm. know? And that part of what makes him um, comfortable in the world is understanding there's an age in which the best thing is to be married to a woman you love, a rich lady you love and going to bed early. Like that really is what is best in life, not to see... You know
1: Yeah, and maybe it's necessary to lose the Ritans who don't understand that way of life.
0: Yeah, well, he'll get there, but you got to go with your buddy. You can't leave your buddies behind. If yeah. you have crummy buddies, he's just going to drop the money in the pool. I also love in that end scene, this is just my quick hitter notes of things that I love that we get and talk on. When he mm-hmm. comes back and sits down after getting the uh, uh, phone call that has died, the way she flicks his hand playfully I don't know what it is about that gesture. Like that gesture is so specific and so sweet. It's like the magic of Becker. There's like a whole movie in that gesture somehow, just that little flick of his hand. And you go, this is somehow he's built a character in a relationship just out of a flick of the hand. You know, like if that was all you saw of these two guys, him looking glum, her flicking the hand, you would would have an entire story right there with them but and that's Mm. incredible directing and it obviously has weight putting it at the very end of the film knowing where it's coming from but she is an underdeveloped character and finding that gesture to make her fully fleshed out in a single gesture is what makes grisby such a miraculous film and becker such a miraculous director is being able to find those small gestures that you want to give me one or you just want me to go in a row no go for it i'll just jump and chime in uh You know what my absolute favorite part of uh, Mm -hmm. Any Number Can Win is?
1: Your absolute favorite part.
0: Absolute favorite thing in it. Not the ending. Not, well, the ending, obviously. But the futuristic coffee maker she has at the beginning that looks like a Bunsen burner (laughs) and and like a boiler, it looks like a lab thing. I love that coffee maker. I spent two hours online trying to figure (laughs) out how to describe it so I could get one any listeners, if you've seen the movie and you are coffee aficionados and know what that kind of coffee maker is called, please DM us, send us an email because I want one. I've never liked anything as much as, you know, the ritual of making coffee (laughs) and getting coffee. And I can't have coffee while I'm in my recovery from the PE and on this medication. And it is ruining my life. Not being able to do my daily, you get up, you have a cup of coffee, you sit with the first cup of coffee, Uh, someplace away from your workstation just thinking about the day you finish it you take a long time you go you make the second cup and you go and you sit at your desk and start getting into the day with the second cup of coffee accompanying you that is that is how I live my life and not being able to do that is it's as destructive as telling you know Josie about the bullion heist it really is (laughs) it's going to be my downfall
1: Anyone knows how to find this rocket espresso maker that Chris is looking for?
0: It looks. Please
1: like write a, to the thepixmoq.com.
0: It looks like a test tube on a Bunsen burner, like a chemical flask. <laughs> I don't even know. It's it's so delightful. It's so futuristic. Uh, Two a uh, couple more little notes. Uh, Vernoy as a director. I love he, we didn't talk much about how slick and talented he is. That's the thing. When you say Hollywood director, slick director, it's easy to overlook how good he is at framing shots and making things interesting and having the production design precise and the camera movements precise. I love he what he does with widescreen in this movie, which is he gives you options of what to focus on in a lot of scene. He frames things in mirrors, the scene on the train we talked about, where it's Gabon in the foreground. Uh, listening to a group of people talking in the background. And then another guy further in the background chimes in. You can watch Gaban's reaction during the scene or you can pay attention to the group. And they're sort of separated almost like a split screen in the wide screen. It's such a radical choice of decision of where to look at. A lot of the white time widescreen format is just used for panoramas where you have the focus still, like a giant shot of a vista of the Western vista of the landscape, but you're supposed to look at the two tiny writers in the in the center of the frame. This gives you actual options on where to look within the frame. Uh, it's, really, it's really dynamic filmmaking. It's really a cognitively stimulating film. Yeah, a
1: lot of really impressive tracking shots too, using the architecture of the casino and the hotel uh to focus of...
0: and refocus your attention he yeah. he will have a scene and then move the camera to use the architecture to narrow your scope within the scene
1: are right he loves that uh kind of sculpture with the big hole in it where you can you yeah. know kind of lose the lawn and then pick him up again you know into the center of the frame so yeah a lot of really fun stuff
0: just in it's easy to to deride slick filmmaking but it's it's also incredibly complicated filmmaking in some ways um, I love that both of these movies have the big moment where they pop open the boxes to get the SMGs out, to get the submachine guns out, right? It's funny because in Grisby, they get it out of the basement. They're in wine cases, right? Covered with straw. And it's funny because I think that you can see how cool the Grisby characters are as opposed to how sort of fake cool the Any Number Can Win characters are by how much less cool it is when they get the gun out. He just like pulls it out of a desk in like a very simple wooden case. And it doesn't feel like, oh, it's on. It feels like, don't give these idiots a gun. You're going to hand that gun to Francis. <laughs> don't yeah, hand then, a gun to Francis. And then
1: how cumbersome it is, like I mentioned, you know, where he's yeah. trying to sneak in and everything. And it's like, I wish this fucking gun wasn't here.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Two notes on posters I noticed. Uh, I love that Charles Aznavour is playing a show at con that's being heavily advertised and any number can win everywhere. You, there's a few shots where you can see the, uh, the, the Charles Aznavour, who of course had starred in shoot the piano player in 1960. And so that's one of the, that's the bigger conversation. I'll sort of want to have a talk about, cause we already mentioned it transitionally, but just the connection of this and what happens to French crime movies with, The French New Wave as well, and what the changes are with it and what this movie, both any number can win as as sort of cutting against the grain with what's going on and Touche Pau Grisby, as you say, sort of presaging it and leading into the new wave era and again mm-hmm. with melville but i love just seeing it's sort of like it feels like oh you've broken the reality here it feels like a fourth <laughs> wall break to have charles asnabar because then i'm thinking of shoot the piano player you know i'm thinking
1: true of very true of this
0: movie in some way there's
1: also a prominent sasha Distel poster that they keep passing in the casino yeah and i don't know much about him what i mainly know about him is that he had a quote where he said uh, why would i cheat on my wife i you know have everything i'd ever want from a woman at home But then, you know, turn out to be like a serial adulterer, you know, Um, and, you know, kind of speaks, I think, to sort of the the phoniness of what's going on in this movie, you know, and pretend pretend to be something you're not and whatnot. So I kind of like that that's sort of prominently put in there.
0: Oh, that's a great catch. Uh, The other movie I noticed, because it even gets a subtitle translation, is um, Back to God's Country with Rock Hudson that Francis passed at the beginning at the movie theater. Mm hmm. And here's what I was watching it and it appears to be a new release. I don't get it because that movie's from the early 50s, right? That movie is like old and I was <laughs> sort of going, how did movie releases work in France back then? Was their new movie, the old Rock Hudson movie from a decade earlier? Is that really yeah. how it went down?
1: I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. Especially back then. I mean, I know when I lived in Europe, American movies were backed up six months easy, like the big ones. So I can see back then, probably even more so by years, I wouldn't be surprised.
0: But, but- a super hit like Back to God's Country, yeah, they didn't yeah. they didn't want to bring to... I'd I mean, wait that... six months to see Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, man, you know? Uh, back to God's Country was not a super hit. This is my joke here is that <laughs> I think you are correct. I think you are correct. Incidentally, I was just reading about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I, I knew it was a hit. I didn't realize that thing was like the super hit of super hits. That was like the number two grossing movie of the year or something. It came out. It was it huge. Sure, makes sense. Everyone I know saw it. Uh, uh, we mentioned it a little bit, but the score for any number can win. That mm. thing is phenomenal too. Yeah, that yeah. is just the greatest score. It's uh, Michelle Magny, who I don't know anything about him except that he committed suicide really young. He committed suicide sometime in the eighties, and that's all I really know about him. Because every time I hear that score, I'm like, I gotta buy it. What else did this guy do? Oh, he killed himself, is what he did. <laughs> (laughs) huh oh that's terrible every time i look it up though i go i forget who he is and then i look it up because i'm like i gotta get that i gotta buy that score
1: it's great throughout but as you were saying that in that last 10 minutes that's just like one of those it's gotta be like top 10 uses of like a score in a movie where you're just overwhelmed by what the music is doing to you it's a musical number yeah
0: it's a total musical number um so here here are my questions right in 19, in, the, in 1959, 1960, you essentially have the French New wave coming along and exploding everything, right? Breathless and "Shoot the Piano Player are two of the big early hits, and they're both crime films that are sort of crime films in quotes, right? They sort of make it impossible for serious artists like Becker, To keep making crime movies in some way. Basically, they shut everything, and they're such negative critics, they shut everything down but Melville, who's somebody they like until they meet him on Breathless, and then he's awesome. So they're like, We're kind of whack, we're Godard, I kinda suck. This guy who rules, I don't like him anymore, right?
1: Yeah. It also shut down stars like the Ban and Delon, you know, who were not, you know in the middle of the new wave and getting cast in the new wave movies.
0: Yeah, it's always surprising to me that that Delon and Gaban both never made a movie with any French new wave director. I guess I guess Delon probably has something later in his career. Like he he did a Louis Malle movie, but does Louis Malle that's not what I'm really talking about when I say French new wave. You know, mm-hmm. if you say Louis Malle then Susan Sarandon did a French new wave movie, I don't think it counts, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, they kind of stop it and i think there are there are a few exceptions like melville gets to keep going and vernu makes a few more movies like this in the sicilian clan but it's a real history that like i said it feels like it runs from like but what's the what's the first french crime movie is it Nuit de Carrefour? you know through 1960 that feels like a very continuous thing and you have grisby and babla Flambeur. uh pre-saging what's going to happen with new wave but instead of being a transition to a new era they stop it that just feels like they stop the tradition in the tracks you know what happens with the new wave um and I was thinking about it, too, how after those early movies, you know, Truffaut famously said, you know, before I had my career, I thought all I was going to do, this is not an exact quote, was like adapt David Goodis books. Then when I spent some time with these characters, I realized I didn't like them and didn't want to make these kind of movies. Like I thought that was always going to do. And Godard obviously stops making movies with any kind of uh, coherent narrative, even though stuff like Père Le uh, uh, is based on, you know, a pulp novel, obviously. And um they just sort of become in quotes and none of the other non-Caia Cinema, non those five credits, Caia Cinema, none of them, like the hip stuff isn't to do crime movies at all. You know, it sort of goes off. They make Godard type films. They make revet type films. They make Romer type films, right? They don't make new crime movies. They sort of don't follow that path. They just sort of stop being made. This entire tradition just gets like, suck down this whirlpool right away. Um why why do you think why do you think they loved Grisby but hated Vernoy? Why why do you think that what happens that that this just all implodes? Like do, does it make sense to you? When I watch these movies together, it doesn't make sense to me. It makes it feel like I already feel this way about a lot of the new wave, but it's just sort of like fraudulent posing in a lot of it that it's sort of, it's destruction of tradition that wants to like honor tradition actually has no understanding and affinity for it. You know, that it ends up being a revolution with no new government put in place. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that sums it up perfectly. And I think your analogy, the Soderbergh analogy is perfect where you have fans of Soderbergh who, love that he made the limey, but hate that he does oceans movies at the same time, you know, yeah, that, you know, they, they want him to be, to make his bubble, you know, and they don't want him to make his big Hollywood films. I, I and that's ridiculous, you know, like yeah. he, he, they, that, that's inherently ridiculous. Certainly a very well-made entertaining film that is not like a capital C cinema movie, like any number can win has merit and has value you know on its own and
0: and i think it has the art- same kind of value an as Le yeah
1: sure yeah i agree with you i i think it's more definitely more in the tradition of those values of the early poetic french cinema than a godard movie i think you know godard is more than anything interested in musicals and comedies and things like that when he's making something like band of outsiders godard is interested in about godard and, and and godard more than anything obviously yeah. is what he's interested in but uh, you know just sort of the idea too that he wouldn't use uh gaban or, or delon but he wants to use people he discovered like belmondo and corinna you know it's i think there's just like you know something egotistic about it and if, just amazing that he has such an appreciation of cinema and the history of cinema. Like you said, no interest in films that build on that and films that come directly from it, that you can kind of trace its DNA straight back to Renoir and to those films and the carne and, and those films like that. He wants to, you know, be too, it's too, it's there's too much of an involvement in being different and doing something completely new that you kind of cut off the umbilical cord at some point.
0: What do you think cuz the one filmmaker of course that I've not mentioned is a new wave filmmaker. What do you think about Chabrol's relationship to all this?
1: Oh, that's that's a whole conversation. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other podcast, man. Chabrol I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know where she, I it's funny because Chabrol made almost only crime movies and you never think of them though as belonging in either tradition. I think of belonging in the french poetic films and you don't think of it belonging in the new wave crime films at all so that's a really good question because Chabrol was so uniquely himself i don't think he belonged to either
0: you you know the one thing i think that he keeps that when i was thinking about it is the coolness to the touch is he avoids the hysteria of expressionism and that's one of the reasons i love the Chabrol movies so much too is that i really do think he keeps that 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 coldness you know even as mm. even as the movies are emotionally hot calling grisby or or pepe lameco cold movies is not right but the coolness to the touch that i've been trying to describe they don't have the overheated melodramatic hysteria of expressionism to them
1: it's interesting i think Chabrol was also so concerned about subverting the expectations of a crime movie you know yeah. that's sort of his sort of new wave take is that you know he would dismiss a a film like Grisby or a film like Any Number Can Win not because you know out of an egotistical I'm doing something different but simply because he knew that those movies were out there and those cliches and noir cliches and things like that were out there and he was like how can I make this different you know and that's I think the value of his films is that he's constantly subverting something that was already very well established
0: yeah yeah Yeah, but they're also so traditional, unlike Godard or... or Sure, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, again, it's not like, you know, I'm going to write my name all over this movie with my aesthetic, you know, or I'm going to, like, change the way cinema is. But he's thinking about these stories and ways of telling them differently. And I have to think about the coolness to the touch, honestly, because just just, uh, talking with our pals, Spencer and Joel, about how it's he definitely condemns his characters but it's not in any kind of a mean-spirited way where it's he's feeling superior to them you know where he he clearly he's presenting something that's like this is not the way to be living life like this character is foolish and awful but it's in it's in a way that's like still fun to watch and it's not a way that's condemning in the way that classically would be there's definitely not a more not traditional moralizing in chabrol's films
0: either yeah Yes. His movies are so good. When he's They're good, amazing. he's the best. Yeah. Um, but it is fascinating because I agree with you. That question seemed to catch you off a little, a little off guard. I feel like I never hear that question asked is as it feels like a really obvious thing, but the connection is so strange. What happens with him in relationship to what became before is so hard to pin down. And so strange that, that I feel like people don't even ask that question. Well,
1: I guess it would be like saying like, what's Hitchcock's relationship to noir movies, you know, where it's like, you know, Chabro is definitely more interested in finding, you know, suspense in the mundane and and domesticity and things like that. He's less interested. Like whenever he did a classic thriller or heist movie, it was sort of a disaster, you know, because that's not really what he's interested in. So that does really set him apart from the Beckers and the Melvilles and that he's not interested in that way of life. I mean, so many of his films are about families or, you know, uh, regular people, you know, living in provincial towns and things like that. So I, I think he didn't have an interest in that kind of slickness. And I think his subversion had a lot to do with staying away from that kind of movie. So I would say he probably was even less interested in films like this than yeah. a Truffaut or Goddard. But that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it would never have occurred to me to have brought that up because Chabrol is so outside everybody else from that period and from French cinema in general.
0: And just to, I'll get us more to the point of, of Grisby and any number can win now to ask you a probably as big and complicated a question. So there's something I've been, I'm actually was sort of working on an essay for it, for the, um, for the site. I watched Pepe Lamoco again for this, just sort of in, in preparation. And I had already been thinking about this um, because I'd watched uh, Ted Dunham too, right? Which is another crime film that we haven't even mentioned. Pepe Lamoco is obviously great, right? It's obviously a phenomenal film and Ted Dunham is a very interesting film as well. It's great as well. When I watch his movies, it's readily apparent to me that Julian de Vivier is not a genius whatever that means. There's something about de Vivier where I keep him out of the category of big C cinema, as you say, right? And I was watching it and comparing it to Grisby, which is to me, obviously big C cinema and Latrue is obviously big C cinema, right? And any number can win is in the de Vivier category where these are movies I love. There's no way there's no way to to honestly disparage Pepe Limoco at all. Pepe Limoco is a great film. Pepe Limoco is a fully valuable film. Pepe Limoco itself is probably Big C cinema, right Even though it's made by a filmmaker who doesn't do that. And is there any can you quantify in any way what makes Grisby, so good, Any Number Can Win has a very overt style. tetun Home and Pepe Lomoco have a very overt style. They're stylish, the artist behind them is making decisions, right? Um, what makes Grisby so good? Uh, to me, I was thinking it's simple in comparison to Any Number Can Win, right? And yeah. it feels tempting to say it's the simplicity, the lack of camera tricks. You know, uh, I always think of of Chabrol and Romer's book on Hitchcock, where they refer to one of something Hitchcock is doing is uh, his penchant for unnecessary frills and furbelows, right? <laughs> yeah, Like it's got no frills and furbelows, right? No, not
1: at all. I but, think that's but, instinctively but, 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 go ahead.
0: But but I think it's it's I think it's not that simple as it's simple. There's plenty of simple movies that aren't half as good as Grisby. Sorry, but go on.
1: No, no, no. I think that there's something instinctive about the way to use Gaban. I think knowing that Gaban looks good in pajamas is important because then <laughs> you can make a film like Grisby and have a 10-minute sequence of him brushing his teeth and getting ready for bed because you know that that's who John Caban is, that he commands the screen effortlessly. And so Grisby by by order becomes effortless itself in its coolness and its expertise and its precise ideas. I think something like you yeah. number can win, you cast Caban and he feels right, but it doesn't feel like, that's the idea of the film is like just put gaban in there and then everything else is going to fall into place this is like this will be an interesting role for gaban to play the you know this veteran jailbird who's now trying to do this final heist but it's more instinctual to use him in the way that that becker does in grisby where it's he's a guy who's just you know sitting on all this money just waiting for the right moment to get out of this world uh which for him is not interesting because he just he he's He's an expert at this kind of thing. and He's just an expert at living in this world. When he put him in as a stranger, again, you know, an outsider the way he is at the casino in Any Number Can Win, it's less of an instinctual way to use Gaban because that's sort of plot-based idea, you know, put them in this scenario. That's the idea of most movies is like, let's take this character or this actor and put him in this scenario and see what happens. With Grisby, I think the instinct is, let's put the scenario... Let's yeah. give it to Jean Gabin because he is, he is the movie. You know, we're not like talking about changing the plot or like moving, doing the mechanics to suit the plot. We're, we're talking about the plot suiting Gaban. So yeah. I think that that's what makes it big. And I think Pepe Lomoco does the same thing where it has this instinctual idea of the way that Gaban should be used in this film.
0: Yeah. You know, you mentioning the pajama scene too made me made me have this thought, which is that in any number can win, there's a lot of talk about how much he likes silk shirts, but there is no moment where the audience gets the pleasure of putting on a silk shirt. Whereas in Grisby, you get the incredible pleasure of going to a safe house, you know, opening the drawer and finding fresh pajamas to put on. And yeah. you feel that pleasure so powerfully. I, I defy you to watch grisby and not want to sit down with some you know toasted baguette pate fresh out of the pot the ceramic pot and and a bottle of champagne you know or white wine or whatever it is you you will want to do that the pleasure of it is so overwhelming in that movie whereas you don't even get the sense of of the pleasure of that dinner that delon makes to seduce the woman you know what I mean you you mm-hmm. don't get any pleasure from that scene but I wonder if that's part of the point too is that the pleasures are Definitely right definitely
1: Mr. Charles might not even want the silk shirts you know his yeah. wife might be right that you know he wants the prison outfit you know that that's you know he's he's not going to be happy no matter what unless he is out in the game and doing something and living vicariously through a younger man the way that he is kind of delusionally doing which is yeah. no, obviously nothing to do with Max from Grisby at all
0: I just feel like there's something so fundamentally human transmitted by Grisby, even as it is a fairly stock, made up, unrealistic gangster story, right? There's something very fundamentally human transmitted about it that is not transmitted except theoretically by any number can win, right? and I enjoy Any Number Can Win probably more as just like a gangster crime story. It's a better story, more stylishly told, you know, probably a tighter script, but well, I that's, think that's not I, I true. Also, wait, 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 let me take that yeah, out. Yeah. That's not true at all. Grisby is the better script, but go on.
1: <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, if I can use a football metaphor without <laughs> uh, isolating too many of our, our, our listeners, it, it's, it's the difference between like a Jim Brown and a Peyton Manning. More or less, yeah. you know, a guy who knows when his time is up and it's time to move on, and a guy who just keeps keeps going out to the game even though he clearly is past his prime and should be hanging it up. Yeah. You know, and I think that that mood permeates through the movie, through any any number can win. And that the only way it can end is in this beautiful destruction of the characters.
0: Yeah. Do you think I'm wrong? Do you think any number can win is as good as Grisby?
1: Is as good as Grisby? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I, I I think Grisby is much better, but I think that they, I think that there's room in the universe for both of them. I mean, yeah. And they're they're fun to compare without necessarily saying quality-wise, one has to stack up the other. And I think it doesn't linger in its shadow, as we were saying. You know, I think it's very much its own thing, and great and fun for different reasons at the same time that it benefits from being, you know, kind of compared to to Grisby in a way.
0: John thank you for talking about these movies with me. This, this was an incredibly fun conversation.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's I, I'm with you and I don't understand what Grisby's reputation is among cinephiles, but if I had to stop and think of it, my it's in my top 10, as you said, that should be the response of anybody who sees this movie. Yeah. And, um, and the legacy of Gabon you know, just makes it possible to, you know, enjoy anything that he's in, and and when he's used well, in both of these movies, he's used well, just in different ways. You're gonna have a fun time. It's a fun time with the movies, these films, yeah. On top of being just great, great films. What else is there to say? Just uh, one more thing to say is, uh, try hunting snails, Daddy
0: <laughs> I am not Daniel Couchy. <laughs> I will not be tossed to the roadside.
1: Anyone who would dismiss this film, that's what I would say.
0: Here's the real question, John. Here's the real question in the note on. Between you and me, who's Max and who's Rattan?
1: Oh, I'm Rattan for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to claim Rattan, though. I'm the one actually out here <laughs> dating Josies. What am I doing? You're the guy who's home getting into bed early. You've, you've moved on to your domestic comedy where you're living with the rich lady, and now you're battling the bats that won't get out of your attic. You're Chevy Chase and Funny Farm. That's the movie you're in. <laughs> and i'm and I'm I'll, dead. I'll accept that i'll accept I, it i'm dead that's what it is
1: L- living with a much more talented partner kind of pathetically with a lot of crazy crazy people in town that's me yeah i'm definitely uh danny farmer is that his
0: name in that movie <laughs> i would know i would definitely know <laughs> i brought it up have a good night everybody